course I forgot to tweet. I said I was going to tweet, and I did not. So I'll tweet it right now while we're doing it. This episode of the podcast, here we go. Here we go. Molly Crab Apple. That must have sucked in high school. Was Molly Crab Apple a pain in the ass? It's not my legal name. Oh, you, good for you. Ooh, I love it. That's even better. Okay. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Lumosity. Lumosity, which is a workout area for your brain online. If you've never used Lumosity or, or heard of it, there's been some real work on uh, games and the mind, and specifically video games for some reason, like uh, really complicated video games. Believe it or not, they're actually probably good for your brain. It's, it's, it's a crazy thing because it's a, without a doubt a waste of your life. Without a doubt. When you're playing Call of Duty, or for me, my, my old addiction was Quake, whatever game you're into, World of Warcraft, without a doubt you're wasting your life. Without a doubt. But your brain's probably getting stronger. <laughs> so um, the, the idea behind games, whether it's chess or, or a video game or the games on Lumosity.com, is the idea that your brain is much like everything else, much like your lungs, much like your body. The more exercise you give it, the better it works. And the idea is they set up programs that are specifically designed by your needs, like the things that you're into and you're interested in working on. And if you go to Lumosity.com, you can see how easy they have it set up. It's kind of interesting. Like you can enter in shit like you click Get Started Now. And then you're like, memory, what, what, do you, what do you specifically like to work on? Recalling of locations or objects, remembering the names. And there's four different options for each one of these categories, like attention and speed, flexibility, problem solving. And then once they're done with that, then they formulate a personalized training program. And it's just games. It's just cool games that are fun to play. But it's actually good for your dome. And uh, we all waste time online, but if you could waste time online and justify it with whatever vague improvements you would get from Lumosity.com, I say go for it. Lumosity's brain games are designed by top scientists to train their mental processes. Top scientists really working on this? <laughs> the top. Can, we, can you define top? Do they tell which ones yeah. they are? Mm-mm. That's complicated. That's trade secrets. <laughs> You're not allowed to. But they're top scientists. These motherfuckers are on the top. Um, check out my special Lumosity page to get started. Go to lumosity.com slash Joe. Click the start training button and start playing your first game. That's lumosity.com slash Joe. They're really fun to play. I mean, whether or not it makes your brain better, and allegedly it does, uh, you can train your memory train challenge your attention problem solving skills allegedly it really does help with that it's fun still fun even even if it's actually good for you so it's like delicious food that's good for your health it's a win-win folks if you're legally a science teacher in like middle school can you call yourself a scientist I think you can. I think there's a loophole there. <laughs> I think that's what it is. <laughs> I'm a top scientist. My self-esteem tells me I'm a top scientist. I would like to. I would like to extend that to science teachers because I just think teaching science is so important. They should be allowed to call themselves scientists. Yeah. They have to like at least one experiment every now and yeah. then. They know what a beaker is. <laughs> they know what a yeah. They know what test tubes work. How they work. We're also brought to you by 1-800-Flowers, 1-800-Flowers.com, um, because it's almost Valentine's Day, and you almost feel obligated to buy flowers. 
But as we said, dudes don't really have this issue with their friends. But your buddies are never buying you flowers. and I've never had a friend buy me flowers. They all buy each other flowers. Yeah. <laughs> but girls buy the, each other flowers. Women buy each other flowers. They'll bring flowers over each other's houses. I brought you some flowers. Like, it's somehow or another feminine to have something incredibly beautiful that smells good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That we ruined it, boys. We ruined it with our hard ass attitudes. We fucked ourselves out of the love of flowers. I always buy when I buy flowers, like I'll buy them at a grocery store or something like that. And I felt embarrassed for a while mm-hmm. carrying my. But now I do it just to test myself. Good for you, bro. <laughs> I like how you're challenging yourself, man. That's beautiful. I like to see people grow. <laughs> yeah, man, it's a weird thing. I don't understand how flowers get attached to feminine. Like if you, you talk to a man and you say, "What do you do? I'm a landscaper." Oh, okay, cool. But if you talk to a guy, what do you do? I'm a florist. Oh, you fucking weirdo. What are you doing over there working with those pretty things? Like things that smell good? Yeah, you fucking, fucking weirdo. Making people's <laughs> houses look better inside. <laughs> what are you doing? Selling them shit that's awesome that they can't find? That's what 1-800-Flowers does. Sell you shit that's awesome that you can't find. Go looking for roses, bitch. Good luck. Go find them on your own. Good luck. It's not easy to get a hold of some flowers. But... If you go to 1-800-Flowers.com, over 18 beautiful Valentine's roses for only $29.99. And for just 10 bucks more, you can get two dozen roses. A full two dozen plus a vase. Notice I said vase, not vase. Okay? Get it together. Is it vase? How do you say it? Vase. Vase. I'd probably say vase. Vase. Normally. You can't find more beautiful roses at such an amazing price. And this offer is only available until Wednesday, February 12th. The, wa- the offer from 1-800-Flowers.com and only while supplies last. So order now before it's too late and get yourself some beautiful flowers. You can go to 1-800-Flowers.com from your desktop or mobile device today. Click on the radio microphone in the upper right-hand corner and enter J-R-E. Why is that funny, man? Something else. Oh, no, I'm just, you could also get really big stuffed animals. Like, look at this. I can imagine getting your wife. Like, hey, I just got you a humongous stuffed animal. That thing's enormous. <laughs> so that off. looks like a person. That's bigger than a person. That's stupid. <laughs> Any girl that I'm dating that if I buy a five-foot-tall stuffed animal for Valentine's, she'd be pissed off. She's not going to put this fucking thing. It's not going to fit my apartment. She would think you were buying her replacement. I know. Yeah, what is going on here? Where am I supposed to put Am this? I supposed to hug this when you leave? It's, what a weird fucking thing. Some girls like it. They love it. Are you kidding me? That's yeah. a smooth move. You bring over a four-foot teddy bear, that shit's... Because it's unusual. It's like a trick. You know, it's like, it's really not like, you know, like if you had to like figure out like what's the best size baseball bat to play baseball, everybody's like, well, there'd be no more limitations on baseball bats. Well, I'm going to pick up a fucking tree, bro. (laughs) All right. I'm going to fucking swing a tree. But the the tree is not the right size. It's, it's probably not one of those mini baseball bats they give out at the stadium. And it's not a tree somewhere in there is the right size. If. And I think that you'd find that out about bears, too. You'd get that big bear and go, listen, this motherfucker's (laughs) pissing me off. (laughs) This thing's everywhere. (laughs) I trip over it in the middle of the night when I'm going to pee. (laughs) This fucking bear is ridiculous. I am the ultimate American consumer. I have a fucking 80-foot-tall bear. Handsome Henry is his name. He's cute, though. I bet he's cool to cuddle with, too. Yeah, maybe it's a good pillow, bed pillow thing when you're gone. Yeah, when you're things? never home and she could just spoon it. That could, yeah, they, they actually do sell things for lonely bachelors in Japan. It's like, a, it was like a pillow with like an arm that like reaches over, like it's holding onto. It's very strange stuff. I wonder if you could watch this. Yeah, just, just get, yeah. 
Don't don't get a pillow with a fucking arm around it. That's creepy. <laughs> if you want to sleep with a teddy bear, you can pretend a teddy bear is its own individual thing. Right. Like you just with a some weird fake arm. Yeah, and this is washable, so you can hump it all you want and wash it. How the fuck are you gonna wash it? <laughs> it's washable. It's, where are you gonna go? You're gonna the climb pl- all over it with a scrub brush. Yeah, places where they clean sails. <laughs> Where are you going to bring that fucking 20-foot-tall bear? It's washable. Whose fucking washing machine is going to fit that bear? Is there a human alive? It's just a hose. Just put it in the driveway. Yeah, you got to hose that thing down. Then it smells like mold. You can't hose that down. Maybe it's waterproof. Maybe they're slick. That's such a fake smile this poor girl's No, it's not fake. She loves that bear, dude. Don't be a dick. I'm four feet tall. What do you talk? Why does it say I'm four feet tall? Am I supposed to think that the bear's fucking talking to me? How about it's four feet tall? I'm four feet tall. The fight. You're not fucking real, man. <laughs> you didn't write that. Who's writing this shit for you? Who's your ghostwriter, bitch? There's another one. Anyway, they're adorable. 1-800-Flowers.com. Entering the code word J-R-E. We're also brought to you by Onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T. Makers of... Did I, did, I, did I say everything that I had to say about 1-800-Flowers? Is there anything specific? Uh, this deal ends tomorrow. So I said that, right? Yeah. Okay. That. Deal's over. Wednesday, February 12th. Two dozen rosins, folks, for just 10 bucks more. So twenty nine ninety nine for 18 Valentine's Day roses. And for just 10 bucks more, you get a full two dozen with a vase. I said it correctly. We're also brought to you by Onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T. Um, boy, am I tired of saying that. Got to figure out a new way to do Onnit <laughs> commercials. Never have. Uh, if you've never heard these commercials, then it won't be as horrible as it's, I'm making it sound. Uh, but Onnit is what we call a human optimization website. I don't know if we made that up. I don't think so. But what it basically is, is we just sell you shit that makes your body work better. Whether it's exercise equipment, strength and conditioning equipment, uh, DVDs, workout DVDs, like the Extreme Kettlebell Cardio Series from Keith Weber. And we, we sell just things that would improve your physical movement, things that will improve athletics, and supplements that we find beneficial. Some of these supplements are very controversial. Nootropics are controversial. This 180 that we're all taking right now before this uh, show is controversial. But all the science that's behind it is at onnit.com. We're also doing studies on all these things, double-blind placebo studies, like real scientific studies. And the individual ingredients of all these things, whether it's alpha brain or there's a lot of science behind a lot of this stuff. We also have a 90-day, 30-pill, 100% money-back guarantee. So if you buy something like Alpha Brain or New Mood, if you say, this stuff sucks, it doesn't really work, you get 100% of your money back. You don't even have to return the product. It's because no one's trying to rip you off. I know that sounds cliche. It sounds stupid. It sounds dumb coming out of my own mouth. But for real, no one's trying to rip you off. All we're trying to do, we think that there's a way to do business where you sell people the best shit you can find. Just the best. The best quality stuff. We don't have to go through any weird distribution deals. We're not in any stores. And because of that, we can sell you the best shit at, like, for the quality and the, the, the purity of the nutrients that we sell. You can't get any better. And that's all we're trying to do, whether it's that or whether it's kettlebells and fitness equipment. We're trying to just sell you shit that works, that universally is praised, whether it's uh, hemp protein powder or whatever. 
organic coconut oil, shit that's good for you. But I keep hearing people saying that coconut oil is not good for you anymore. Really? Yeah, I've been this hearing this lately. This. There's a lot of people. It's fine. it's so hard to find out what's right. <laughs> you know, you read these studies online, and they'll tell you the benefits of all these different oils and fats, and then you know, then then a couple months later, the tide turns, and there's some new studies that show the coconut oil makes your dick fall off. You know, you never you never know with this stuff, man. Hemp milk, that's the new thing. Hemp milk's supposed to be good for you. Yeah, it's good it's for just you. Nonstop amazing. But you know what? Here's a problem. Um, I I had explained this to a friend. Um. When you're drinking that stuff, like he was all into like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've gone dairy free and now I'm drinking this. It's actually Duncan. He's like, I'm, I've gone, he wouldn't mind, dairy free and I'm drinking like really healthy almond milk and so delicious, man. I go, it's delicious. I go, look on the ingredients. I go, what's in there? I go, there's sugar in there. He goes, no, there's not sugar in there. I go, dude, there's sugar in there. Yeah, because I'm sure he's getting the vanilla kind. Dude, yeah, it's nine fucking grams of sugar a glass, or a cup, rather. I mean, who drinks a cup? You're drinking like 18 grams of sugar. You know, you're drinking a couple of cups. He's like, holy shit. I go, yeah, it's sugar water. You're drinking sugar water. They're assholes. Assholes sold you sugar water, and they're trying to pretend that it's good for you. That shit's poison, son. That's really bad for you. Yeah, you don't get the vanilla or the chocolate kind. You're no. Obviously, there's stuff in it. But. We got a weird thing, man. Human beings have a weird thing where we love mouth pleasure so much. Like the pleasure of taste. We're willing to poison ourselves in order to give ourselves mouth pleasure. And won't, just won't deny ourselves any... I'm not going to eat Brussels sprouts. But you know they're good for you. But that just whatever it is, the feeling of eating Brussels sprouts, being unpleasurable... They they shut down all need for nutrients. They shut down. But I'd rather have the pleasure. Fuck all the good stuff for the body. And that's like the standard relationship. The standard relationship is we don't do what's what's good and healthy for us. We gravitate towards mouth pleasure. Well, it's that like classic reptile brain thing that's trained to make you eat the most caloric, sweet thing so that you don't starve to death. Yeah. But ultimately, it just fucks you over because we're not foraging anymore and we're in no danger of starving to death. Yeah. If you're foraging and you're running up hills all day, you could probably eat the same diet that people ate. You You know, you could probably just eat a lot of fats. You would be burning off so many calories. You know, like the average... Like if you, I mean, you wouldn't get a lot of nutrients, but you could probably burn it off all the calories. Like if you were a guy that like ran hills and you know you just ate Burger King, you could probably get away with it. You know you wouldn't get fat. It wouldn't be optimum for your performance, but you wouldn't get fat. But for the average person, we're just sucking down, just artery clogging shit, just just stuffing our veins full with this shit. Just fries and burgers, just packing it into our veins. Blech, blech. All for mouth pleasure. And we're just jerking off in front of each other, eating these things. Oh, just disgusting, greasy burger and fries. Packing it into your heart. Blech. But then again, tofu tastes like shit. You know, you can only eat kale so much. Maybe you can soak the tofu in like stevia and oil and you can trick yourself. No, we're going to have to invent some GMO food that's delicious. Super delicious and really good for you. That's what that's what we sh- should figure out. Humans Science- must taste amazing cuz we're stuffed Probably. with like so much good shit. Well, I think it depends on what you eat. Like, some humans would taste amazing. Like, vegetarians would probably be fucking delicious. Ari would be fruity. 
Ari would taste gummy like bears and <laughs> chemicals in there. Who knows what's running around in his. This has nothing to do with Onnit. O N N I T. Use the code word Rogan. Save 10% off any and all supplements. I'm making these longer because you people keep complaining to me on Twitter. You go fuck yourself. I'm going to make them as long as I want. They're, they're barely commercials, you fucks. Sure. Anyway, Molly Crabapple is here, and uh, we're going to get busy with the music. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Ladies and gentlemen, Molly Crabapple. Hey, thanks Ta-da. for having me. Thanks for coming. It's cool. so cool. So cool to uh, make contact with you. Cool to see your stuff on the internet. The... Uh, I, I first found out about you because actually a dispute that you had with Amber Lyon. You guys are buddies now. Everything got worked out. But Everything got worked out, yeah. But I, I went to your page and I was like, holy shit, what cool art. Like really interesting stuff. Like very distinct and, and fascinating. And I started reading your tweets and I was like, oh, she's really fucking smart. Oh, cool. Man, thank you. So, uh, so here you are. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. And you were you were telling us about uh, what was the thing that you did where you, you you had to paint a mural. You were talking about it like right before. That was like how many hours was it? So I was in London, jet lagged, off my ass, reeling, and I had to paint a 50 foot mural in three days, like up on a ladder, all you know, intricate sharpies. And modafinil got me through this. <laughs> <laughs> the, the wonder drug that people don't want to. That's people speak of in hushed tones. They don't want to admit they take it. I even had uh, the guy who was uh, one of the uh, directors of Maps on the show, and he was reluctant to talk about taking modafinil before the show because he was tired. And I was like, "Do you know how crazy that is, man? You're you're part of the multidisciplinary psychedelic studies group, and you're afraid to tell people that you took some modafinil before a show. Not afraid, but he was a, a just a touch reluctant, and then he divulged it." But I'm like, that stuff is great. I think you could get very addictive, though. I think it, that's uh, not physically addictive as far as what I've experienced, but the effects are so real and so obvious that I would think that some people would be like, I want to be on it all the time, man. Well, it gets rid of like all of the weakness of your meat self. It makes you just not tired. <laughs> it makes you focused. You don't get distracted. Anyone would want to be on it all the time. They'd be like, I'm fucking Superman. Wow, you, you got a really powerful reaction to it. I loved it. I didn't have that same reaction. Um, I, I didn't feel like I just felt sharper. That's it. I didn't feel like you know, like Superman. I, I just I felt like I I have less lag in my system. That's how I felt, you know. But it didn't make me feel any stronger or anything like that. But I do know it's outlawed the Olympics. It is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it probably has some profound effects on the body as well. If you think about the effects that it has on the mind. That stuff is amazing. I found out about it from uh, Dave Asprey was the first person, but after the fact, like he did the podcast and was like this really sharp, really fucking like smooth talking guy with so much information. And I was like, God, this guy never runs out of energy. Like, this is crazy. And then I I watched this special that was like a a special on ProVigil and he was on it and talking about taking this stuff and, you know, this incredible effect that it has and all these IT people are on it. And I was like, oh, okay, I got to try this. <laughs> so the first time I tried it, I called him up, and I was like, this is fucking crazy. Like, and I, I had the same feeling that, like, Tim Ferriss had. Tim Ferriss, who wrote that four-hour body and four-hour work week, he, he didn't put it in his book specifically because he would worry that people would just be eating it like candy. Oh, that's so interesting. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he got to that part of the book. He was like, fuck this, man. <laughs> They're going to just start eating it. 
People are crazy. They can't give them this stuff. I don't think people understand. I think there's a lot of people out there that don't know about modafinil. Well, don't get turned on to it, so there's more for those who need it. Right. I think they'll be fine. I think the government knows how to make that stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's the Uber munch. They're gonna, it's going to come out of a modafinil bottle. Yeah, you just, I gave one to Brian. He was in here, and uh, he had to drive to San Diego, and he had got like two hours sleep, and he was ready to conk out. And I was like, trust me, just eat this. Uh, did I even tell you to eat? You I thought you eat a half. half. half yeah, eat a half of one. I'm just eat a half of one. Immediately, I went from like just having the worst day of my life to just like okay, everything's fine, everything's, everything's great. <laughs> I need to get more of that. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, what? Where did that come from? I didn't even find out about that stuff until a year ago. You know, what's going to be a year from now? What kind of fucking? I mean, it doesn't even seem to have any negative side effects. Like, yeah, is there any? I don't know. I'm not, I'm word just like Tim Ferriss though, like. His, his uh, quote that there's no biological free lunch. Remember when he was talking about it? Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, I hope it doesn't do anything to you because it's pretty awesome. I guess the only side effect would be if you just used it not to sleep. Because if you, you can't not sleep even right. if you don't feel sleepy. Allegedly, it, lo- it allows you to go to sleep. I've never tried it. Every time I've tried the stuff, it's because I have a lot of work to do. When I need, you know, but, but I won't let myself do it more than once every couple of weeks, like once, once a month, even it's just too delicious. <laughs> no, same. That's my, um, it's my special crutch for when I have some giant mural project where I know I'm going to be on a ladder for 14 hours. Yeah. Some people have a different reaction to it though. Um, uh, some people just, you know, to them, it's just like coffee. It's interesting. I've heard a couple of people's different descriptions of what it does for them. Sounds. I think there's also a difference between pro vigil and new vigil. Have you tried new vigil? No, I haven't. New vigil is the stuff that I gave you. All right. Um, so that the the pro vigil got you through. Do you feel? It you paint, me. Do you paint paint any differently when you're on it or off of it? So. Drawing at that sort of scale, like when I'm doing those murals, is like the mental equivalent of picking scabs. It is so boring. You're just making these tiny repetitive lines over and over. And it actually makes me paint better because I get this hyper focus and I can deal with the pain and boredom of what I'm doing. Wow, that's pretty cool. So when you're when you're designing something like this, like this enormous mural, do you draw it out on a micro scale first? Like how do you how do you go about making something like that? When I was doing the London thing, I just riffed. I had kind of an idea that I was going to do the decline and fall of civilization as told through this nightclub I was working on. And I just fucking let it pour out of my hands. Wow. So you've just freeballed it. The I freeballed it, yeah. Wow. That is so cool. Do you ever freeball something and get halfway into it and be like, eee, I should have gone a different direction here? Well, with murals, it's easy not to do that because there's so much space. You could just kind of work around it but i've had that all the time when i'm working on a piece i'll like draw half of it and i'll be like oh man i screwed up the head the stairs are all crooked this is failure let me burn this like like a child who has failed me yeah i um used to draw a lot as a child and uh i, w- I originally wanted to be a comic book artist i was really fascinated by comic book art and that frank frazetta type stuff and um, when um, I started to draw a lot, like sometimes I would get on these these periods where I would start something and then halfway in it, I'd be like, Ugh, I got to drop this one. And I realized when you start becoming a comedian that it's sort of the same thing in everything. Like when you're being creative, if you're trying something out, you, whether it's writing or whatever, you, you to really truly create, you have to kind of explore like whatever weird whims. And some of them pan out. 
And some of them don't, right? It's so true. And also, when you're a creative person, you have to just accept that your first like five years are just going to not be very good. <laughs> and the problem is usually you want to be creative because you have kind of you know you have good taste, you have a vision, and you see so clearly the ways you fail your vision, and you just have to learn how to stick through your fail period. Yeah, I think the fail period's huge, though. It's so important. For I think every art form, I think you have to suck at it to really appreciate what what's magical about being good at it. Oh God, yeah. And then there's this moment, this one happy day when it feels effortless just for one second, and it's it was all worth it. And then other people are like, "Oh, it's easy for you. Get a real job." Yeah, that's the those people are hilarious. They get a real job. Why would you want to wish that on anybody? I know. Why would you want to wish a real job? How rude. Get a real job. Stop chasing your dreams. How did you uh, become a, a, f- a famous artist? What happened? So I've been drawing since I was four years old. My mom is an amazing illustrator. She like illustrated like Cabbage Patch Kids or like, uh. you know, stuff for gumball machines. She's super good, way better than I am. And so I was making all like the little kitty mistakes that kids do. And my mom would just be like, no, no daughter of mine is going to draw a nose like an upside down seven. You're going to do this right. And then I, I just got good at it and I got good at hustling money with it. Like, I'd be 17, and I would hang up flyers at Forbidden Planet offering to draw people's D&D characters. That's hilarious. That's a slick move. Thank you. (laughs) Or I would, like, draw people's pets. I'd draw their kids. It's just when you're making art, you're able to take raw materials that cost $2 and turn it into something that costs $500 or $1,000 or $10,000. Everything is – like, all the value is in you. And so – I just I kept doing it. I was addicted both to drawing and also to the hustle of it. That's fascinating. I like that you admit that because a lot of people. Oh, I'm just about the art. I don't even oh, care fuck about those the money. People. Oh, fuck, that's a trust fund. That's, a, that's their trust fund talking. I love the idea that you can be creative and pursue money. No, it's it's absolutely true. And I mean, why not? Yeah, it's the alternative is having some fucking gallery milking you and taking 50% of what you make and you is that just what they take? Yeah, they take 50%. Whoa. That seems like a lot. I know, right? It's 50? It's like worse than agents, worse than anything, 50%. Wow, wow, that's crazy. And then do you have to have like an exclusive deal with them? Is that like how a lot of them do it? So like if they take 50%, you can't just go to another place and they also sell a different painting and then they take 50% too. Do they have a piece of you forever? Uh, it depends on the deal you have. But if you were working with like some big gallery, yeah, they would have a piece of you. And also you wouldn't be able to sell your work privately. Like they would, like if someone came to you and was like, yo, Joe, I want to buy one of your comics panels, you'd have to go to the gallery and have them negotiate the deal and take their cut. It really is all dependent upon like what you can get away with, you know, because if you're like we were talking the other day about reality shows where the people who go on those shows, they have to sign, you know, different shows of different contracts, obviously. But if if you're on one of those like what just name a show it's a hairdresser show, you're making, you know, those people have to sign these crazy contracts where they can use your likeness for like the rest of their of your natural life. They're like they they own a piece of like everything you do in show business. Essentially, it's this weird thing that they can they they kind of can say they kind of can say like we're making you. So because we're making you, we own a chunk of you. And it's so sad now, especially because if you want to be your own entity, if you want to be famous, you don't need those bastards. Like you can make a niche for yourself. You don't need to sign away your soul to some like vampiric reality corporation that's going to make you look like a fool. Yeah, the thing is that 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 system is already plugged in, runs smoothly and extracts money. 
you know, that's the television system. It's, it it's runs very smoothly. We all know <clears throat> we can go to A&E and get quality programming. We all know that we can go to HBO and watch Game of Thrones. So we're just, it's, it's like completely plugged in. We're so completely used to it that there, if you, especially if you're going to do a reality show, that's like where you would go. If you just like, just anything to get famous, boom, you know, that's where you would go. And you, you sort of have to become a part of that system. But if you're an artist, do you have to go initially with galleries? Like, how do you break out? Do you break out entirely through social media? Like, how do you... Uh... I never went through galleries. I mean, I've been in, like, a few group shows, but galleries never really wanted me. <laughs> so I was pretty much entirely through the internet and also through doing art about stuff that other people cared about. Like, it's one thing if you're just doing abstract pastel canvases. But, like, I would go to Guantanamo Bay and draw that. So people who cared about Guantanamo Bay or civil liberties would also be turned on to my art. Oh, wow. So, now, and I'm, I'm sorry I connected you with reality shows. It's not intentional. It was a, probably a poor uh, analogy. But my, my analogy of the struggling person who gets sucked. And it's all really what you can get away with. That, you know, a person in a reality show, like, hey, it could be you. It could be anybody else, buddy. Sign the dotted line. Or as an artist has options and when an artist develops uh, like a group of people that appreciate their art and then it spreads out then you totally have options so then you know you're essentially running your own show now right exactly and that's why they propagandize so much the idea that artists can't know anything about money the idea that talking about money makes you corrupt because if you believe that in your heart of hearts you're really vulnerable to bad shitty deals that take 50 percent of what you make yeah because those people they're like listen we're all gonna make money you need us and we need you and that's true, but like 50%, it's like, that seems crazy. You just have a building, dude. You got a building? <laughs> we put the stuff up. That, how did you get 50% for putting a light on it? You've, I mean, that is one of the weirdest deals ever. Like one person is actually creating the art and the other person has a, a window <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a roof and they get half. That seems like a ripoff. And the whole model is like you spend a year, two years, you know, slaving on your show. You put all of the uh, money it takes to do it up yourself, like all the money in the canvas, the paints, you know. Then you hang your show for a month. Um, what sells, sells. What doesn't usually can't be reshown because it's kind of a failure. And then um, you get 50% when the gallery deigns to pay you. When and how long is that sometimes? Like a few months, a year. Wow. A year? There have, been, there have been stories. I've had friends who haven't gotten paid by their galleries like ever. Like they did a whole show, put up all that money, all that effort, and zero. And what do they do? They try to sue. They, you know. Oh, God. Yeah, the, the, there's, a weird, there's a weird group of people, no matter what discipline you're involved in, whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's comedy, there's, you're going to run into people that are kind of swindlers. Right. No, like in New York, um, in Times Square, there are always these guys that are like standing out in the snow giving out flyers for comedy clubs just in exchange for their chance to perform for a little bit. Yeah. And like sometimes I look at them and I feel so bad. I'm like, man, this, this system is so disrespectful to you. Like you're providing the talent and you're also standing out in the freezing cold, like handing these, thing, these flyers out. Yeah, that's not a fun system to be a part of the uh, trying to get on stage system. But for the comics, like, you know, I always think – Man, if they just do that, they'll have more funny shit to talk about. You know, they'll if they just do that and make it through, you know, and then eventually become a professional, they could actually like talk about that. They could actually, you know, sit down on a talk show and talk about how they used to hand out flyers in the village for the comedy cellar, you know, before they could ever get on stage. And it's it's a 
almost like a badge of honor that you did something like that. I, I, I could definitely see that. But only if you're like 21. Yeah, yeah. not if you're 40. <laughs> if you're 40 and you're handing out, well, I don't know, fuck it, man. If You're even more of a hero if you're 40 and you, and you quit your job and you're 40 and you're out there handing out flyers. That's even more fucking crazy. Then I got some respect for you. Still in my heart of hearts, I want there to be a way like for people to make it as comedians or to make it in any creative thing without having to do that sort of like bowing down, handing out flyers yeah. in the snow. Well, I think that the clubs are really vulnerable, unfortunately. It's, it's, there's not a lot of business in comedy clubs. And I think they probably, I don't know which clubs specifically pay people to hand out flyers or, or what have you, but it's, it's hard for clubs to stay open these days. It's hard for people to get people to come in and sit down and watch comedy shows. And I think a lot of it is the comedian's fault. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of it is uh, people that don't, they don't stay in touch with their audience enough. I think there's a lot of bad comedy out there too, unfortunately. Like you can't always find like a good show. It's difficult to find a good show. Like you could – LA is pretty exceptional. I mean LA has – there's a hundred – great comics that live like in and around LA like easily right wouldn't you I, say I, I, I meet a new one every day too like, yeah it's just nonstop. yeah so many funny people here yeah. this is unusual but it's like people don't want to take a chance and go to a comedy club on a Thursday night and that, that's a lot of times what you know these clubs need they need like a, a really big Thursday night a big Wednesday night a big t and when they can do that then they can pay their bills and stay open but for us without them life would suck Imagine if you didn't have comedy clubs and you had to like organize like open mic nights to work out new material and at bars. the Roxy or some shit. Yeah, next to a pool table. <sighs> It'd be terrible without them, without the Ice House and the Comedy and Magic Club and places like that. But that's a different relationship than that of a gallery and an artist. Like you really don't need them. <laughs> just, no, I we mean we need club owners. I mean, if I wanted to sell my paintings for a million bucks, which is its own thing, I would need them because. Russian oligarchs and you know hedge fund guys they they work with galleries I mean they, they don't want to like be fucking coming over to my studio and having awkward conversation with me they, <laughs> they want to you know go to go to like sleek white gallery and have someone who speaks their language assure them that it's a good investment right but I, I don't sell work for a million dollars so there is a niche for me just to be on my own I think you can sell work for a million dollars we just have to make it so that you can sell work for a million dollars I mean I don't know, mean we but I mean anybody who's like uh, involved in deciding what things cost if they just decided your work cost a million bucks it's totally rational. It makes sense. I mean, there is work out there that costs a million bucks, right? Why can't yours? If, if For sure it could. It's a weird thing. It's like art, it's like two things at once. Like on one hand, it's like this object of beauty and pleasure. But on the other hand, it's also like a stock. You know, it's an mm -hmm. investment. And stocks, like the prices of them, it's kind of arbitrary. And it's the same with art. And it has everything to do with like who collects it, what collections you're in, what gallery you're in. It's almost like... The value is determined entirely based on the approval of certain people and has nothing to do with intrinsic qualities at all. Well, there's also um, really clever ways of getting people excited about the price of something. And who was it that was telling us about this? Oh, it was a, a friend that was talking to uh, Tom Segura and I when we were in New York. He was talking about how they set up – galleries set up an artist in, a, in one way. They'll gift these pieces – and he was talking about this particular photographer. And they, they created this guy's entire career 
by gifting these really enormous, very beautiful pieces to famous collectors and saying, this is a $50,000 piece. The gallery would like to gift this to you just out of, you know, token of our appreciation of your business, whatever. So they give him this beautiful picture and then they, he seeds these to a couple other people. Now, if there's like art collectors they're all keeping up with the joneses type guys and if there's some new guy who's giving out fifty thousand dollar pieces to that guy and then mike has one and shelly has one i need to get one too like where where is this guy i need to go oh my god he's amazing and then boom next thing you know it they to a gallery showing and they put up this guy's stuff and they've already established the price point they told him i'm gifting you a fifty thousand dollar piece and then, boom, it's $50,000 for all these different photographs. And they're flying off the shelves. And they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars in a day. Uh, you know, obviously more than a day to take the pictures and print them and all that. But it's an incredible windfall of money. And it was created with a sort of artificial demand based on gifting things. No, it's absolutely ingenious. Also, yeah. Damien Hurst, when he did that skull covered in diamonds, he started kind of... Can you pull that up? Pull that up, Brian, if you can find it online. He started kind of a what do, I, what do I want to call it like a fund, a group of people, including himself, to buy the skull at auction so that it could be the highest priced artwork ever done. <laughs> so he was spending his own money on his own art just to create this a weebrus of wealth. Wow, that's hilarious. That's a smart thing. This is it. This is it right here. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. God. If you're a rapper, is that a real skull? Yeah, it is. You can buy real skulls. Isn't that weird? Remember when I had that piranha tank? I had the real skeleton in it. Bought a skeleton. Bought like a femur, a couple of human heads. You could just Did, buy them. Didn't that creep you out? Like there was like no. spirits attached to that. I don't buy it. Energy. I think it's just a bone. <laughs> didn't feel a fucking thing. That's so weird. It's very weird. Numbers used to think. Well, your, not only now, that, but who knows how they died? <laughs> who the fuck knows how they died? You know, how are you getting a hold of bones? Don't worry about it. <laughs> You know, when you're buying bones from Malaysia, do you really have a direct line of, of, of uh, you know, what was, the, what was the term you would use? Like a uh, direct line of possession from the, the body, from the person being alive to them being dead to the, you're having that skull on your desk. And do you just throw it away? How do you get rid of it? I just got rid of it. Wink, wink. <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, the, the bones were dissolving in the water. I found that fascinating. Like very quickly. Like within a year, the bones were dissolving. Wow. And just regular, that's my, you know, freshwater. I had a freshwater tank. So imagine, you know, in the ocean, how quickly your bones dissolve. Probably even more quickly, right? Or would it be the opposite because of the salt content? Would it, would it be the opposite? That is so, I'm just freaked out. I didn't know that was a real skeleton this whole time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so was it like a memento mori for you or was it just decoration? Um, well, uh, I'm an asshole. And <laughs> I thought it would be cool to have piranhas in my house and to feed them things where there were skulls laying around on the bottom of the tank. What that's do you just feed a- the true, That's just the true story. What do you feed piranhas? Goldfish. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. They fuck up some goldfish. <laughs> But you know what's way cooler than uh, piranhas, though, is people who have uh, those. Uh, if you ever been to someone who has like a reef, like they have a coral reef and like uh, all those like uh, little reef dwelling plants and stuff, like really delicate plants, very difficult to grow. So it's hard to do correctly. We have like one of those really beautiful coral reef looking things. But when they do have them, they have these incredibly colorful fish that sw- I mean, it's this constant art. I mean, if you, lo- if you look at a coral reef, like one of those really good tanks that people put together, they have that one reality show. 
That's yeah, but mine was like a real skull. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have that um it was a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. I've changed. I wouldn't do that today. I have kids. Uh but the um they they can make them so that it's like mesmerizing. Like you're just looking at all these different colors of plants and these different colors of these weird little fish. That's way more beautiful than piranhas. Piranhas are boring. They just sit there and wait to kill something. Then when you throw a goldfish in there, they fuck the goldfish up and then that's it. Yeah. But they're not beautiful. There's uh, things that are beautiful and there's things that are not beautiful. And I don't know. I'm not sure I could define why something's beautiful, why something's not. And sometimes what's beautiful changes. Like there's people that are so tired of traditional beauty that ugliness becomes beautiful to them. Scars become beautiful to them. Character becomes beautiful to them. You know, people just, they change what, what they find beautiful in the world and in, in what they see. I think that's pretty fascinating, and I don't, I don't know why, you know? No, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, like, you take war. Like, war is one of the ugliest things in the world. You know, it's the destruction of fucking everything. But um, I follow these guys. They're these Western Muslim fundamentalists who are going to fight in Syria right now. And um, they all have Instagram accounts. And, Jesus. And their Instagram accounts are the most fetishizist most um like they're fetishizing war they are like taking these horrifying scenes from like aleppo or raqqa and they're running them through filters and they're they're kind of making they're ripping them out of context and making them beautiful and it's this weird thing because it's like you know that if you were there this you know this apocalypse this is death it's like the end of thinking beings but over the internet through all these filters it becomes beautiful like when you stand far enough away wow that's an interesting way to think about it that, that it really truly is what it is, going through a bunch of filters. And that's the only way you could ever watch, like, Saving Private Ryan. It has to go through all these filters. Exactly. They have to, like, take the horror and make it aesthetic. Yeah, and detach you from it in some way. You know, put you put you into it, but still detach you from it. Yeah, otherwise no one would ever accept it. I mean, the only reason why people accept war in this day and age is because it's nowhere near us. Exactly, yeah. I mean, why would you accept something that's taking living, thinking, loving people and turning them into red mash? Yeah, and all with dubious intent. I mean, there's there's reasons to go to war. There's reasons to defend countries against invaders. And then there's, like, weird shit. We're like, wait a minute, why are we over there? What did the Afghanistan... What did they do? What did they do to us? This seems like a weird adventure. We're over there for how many years? What the fuck is going on? Yeah, and... That it's still going on in 2013. It's very, it's very bizarre. Now, 2014, it's still going on. I mean, part of the problem is that America, we like to go to war not with actual people, but with concepts. Like, we have the war on drugs, right? We, we're going to war with, with drugs. You can't, drugs can't surrender. Drugs can't give up and say you win. And then we go to war on terror. Terror is a tactic. Terror can't surrender. You know, and it leads to all these incredibly, incredibly dubious decisions, whether it's like, New York, where cops are frisking young guys' balls just to look for marijuana, or whether it's fucking Gitmo, or whether it's this unending war in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, there's uh, there's definitely more information about it today than ever before, too. You know, there's so many people taking little YouTube videos of people doing fucked up things, and just there's there's just more ways for people to sort of spread the truth than kind of ever before. It's it's harder to keep a Gitmo open today. 
than it was a long time ago. Like the more stories that come out of there and the more you're like, Jesus, what the fuck are they doing? Like, what are they doing? They're playing loud music and keeping them up all night and hog tying them and waterboarding them. <laughs> and like, what are you getting out of that? Like this is, we guys are fucking freaks. What are you doing? Just, what are you doing to people? Like, does that work? When I was there, one of the things that I learned that I hadn't realized before was most of the guys there are people that we bought for bounties in Afghanistan. We bought them? Yeah, basically. So this is what we did. Um, War in Afghanistan starts. We're looking for Arab Arab dudes in Afghanistan. Um, you know, like, like bin Laden was. They called them the Afghan Arabs. They were these, like, guys who had, um, you know, they had fought the Russians and then stayed on and, you know, were fundies. So we're looking for these guys. So what we do is we drop fucking flyers on Afghanistan offering 5,000 buck bounties for any Arabs they capture. Now, $5,000 in Afghanistan is 10 years local salary. So what happens is they just bring in Arabs. They're not terrorists necessarily. They're not fighters. They're just fucking Arab dudes. They also bring in a bunch of like random Afghan dudes who are like mentally ill or owe debts to people or use drugs or who otherwise have annoyed them. And then these guys, we buy them for 5000 bucks. The locals are like, yeah, he's a, he's a terrorist. I'll give me my money. And then they go over to Gitmo, and there's no way for them to prove that they're innocent. What? Wait a minute. Really? Really. I mean, there how, are, many, how many of them are like that in there, you think? Well, how about this, okay? Almost 800 people have gone through Gitmo. We've had eight convictions for war crimes so far. Wow. So, I mean, lots of... I mean, there are definitely scary, evil fucking people in Gitmo, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or Nashiri. And then there are also probably, like, misguided teenage dudes who shot a rifle once at us who, you know... I mean, they were shooting a rifle, but should they be, like, tortured for 12 years for it? No, I don't think. And then there's just people like this one uh, Al Jazeera cameraman that we held there for a bunch of years. Just a cameraman? He was an Al Jazeera cameraman, yeah. They held him there for years? They did. And so uh, Chelsea Manning, when she leaked the... um, the Gitmo files that mm-hmm. show the um, that show kind of our, our evidence against people and what we hope to get out of them. What we hope to get out of this guy was information on Al Jazeera. Wow, that's crazy. So, how many people are in Gitmo currently? One hundred and fifty-five. There's one hundred and fifty-five guys in there, and out of those one hundred and fifty-five guys, the how many of them are like really scary people and how many of them are these people that were in your opinion sold so when i spoke to the chief prosecutor of gitmo uh, general mark martins he told me that 20 people are prosecutable there 20 20 so the rest of them it's just like they they're, have them they have just have to keep them now yeah they're they're not they're not prosecutable cuz the thing is like just because someone shot a rifle at american forces in afghanistan um, doesn't mean they did a war crime. Like, that's not a war crime. That's just, you know, that's just being like a Taliban soldier or whatever. And um, so you can't, you can't try them for shooting a rifle at you 12 years ago. So their logic is that they're holding these guys until the end of the war. But the war isn't against Afghanistan that they're holding them against un- until the end of. The war is against terror. So they're holding these guys until the end of the war on terror. Whoa. Wow. That's like the war of that, – that, that is such an insane statement. Cause that, that war has been going on forever. And it can end. I mean terror is a tactic. Right. And when did it start? I mean is there a defined begin point to the war on terror? I mean didn't it – when? when? 
When did it start? Was I it think like 9/11 is when yeah, they started the war on terror? Day after. Is that what but but if couldn't they backdate it to other terrorist activities? Like couldn't they backdate it to the Iranian hostages from the Carter administration if they really wanted to get crazy? I mean, couldn't they backdate it to, you know, the uh the the attack on uh Israeli athletes back in the Olympics? They could backdate it all the way if they wanted to. I mean, the war on terror has been on from the beginning of time. It will never end. Me- meaning like this is not a war that is going to be over anytime soon. No, it So it they're just locked ends. up. Yeah, they're they're just locked up. And um it's this weird bureaucratic thing. And part of the problem is like, okay, so let's say you have a dude, right? Who either is innocent or he's like some low level grunt. And he's been to Gitmo and he can't go back to his home country for whatever reason. And no other countries want to take him because we've made a big deal about how these guys are the worst and the worst in the world. <sighs> And we can't resettle them to America because Americans are fucking cowards who are so terrified that, like, a 50-year-old man might, I don't know, blow something up. So they're just stuck there. By the way, people, like right-wing people, are going crazy right now. America's a bunch. You think we're cowards because we don't want a man who's in Guantanamo Bay walking amongst my children? Okay, so here's an example of what I'm talking about. There are these um, dudes and. They finally we finally let them out after 12 years, but they're Uyghurs. So they are um, Chinese guys fight. They're a Chinese ethnic minority. They were fighting against China. They had no problem against with us. They were swept up in the war on terror, and they were put in Guantanamo. Immediately, we realized that these guys weren't fighting us. They were fighting China. Multiple tribunals decided this. The Bush administration said that these guys, you know not fighting us. There were church groups that wanted to take them in America and resettle them here. China wanted them back because China wanted to torture them to death. But we were so fucking scared as a country that we would not allow the resettlement of anti-Chinese people in America. So what did we... So We, we kept them in Gitmo. We slowly got rid of them one by one. Um, we put them in like Albania. We put some of them in like a fucking... Or was it? It was like some um, like some Polynesian island took some of them. We put the last of them in Slovakia very recently. It sounds like if somebody one day writes a book on Guantanamo Bay, it's going to be a doozy. Yeah. Right? That book's going to be a doozy. That sounds nuts. That's a terrifying thing that humans can do. And we, ta- we touched upon it a bit yesterday with the immortal technique that the 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 way that people can dehumanize the other you know whether whether it's another gender whether it's another race whether it's another nationality whether it's another sexual orientation whatever the other that we can justify like dehumanizing people are capable of incredible ugliness it's it's so strange the broad range of what we're capable of like amazing loving things and the worst like i have a a friend and he has these neighbors, and uh, they're an old couple. And uh, they come over, and they're like his kids' long-lost grandparents. They're so nice. It's like they've always been a part of the family. They just, they're just really sweet people who live next door. And they buy the kids like cres- uh, presents for Christmas, and they do little cute things with them, and they'll, they'll, they'll like babysit them, and they love these kids like family. It's, they just got lucky, just got lucky and moved next to some beautiful people who are super cool and friendly. But you could also move next to someone who wants to eat your kids. 
You know, I mean, we're we're capable of so much of a, a a range. It's 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 hard to wrap your head around sometimes. It really is. No, it's the most fascinating thing. Like we have, you know, this little bit of light between these two voids, and we can do anything with it. We can, you know, we can make the most amazing art. We can like fucking save kids, and we can love each other, and then we can also turn each other into red mash. I wonder if if it's important to have both. I wonder if. if it sounds like a weird thing to say, but if everything is natural, I mean, if the, the 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 way giraffes form herds, the way birds fly together in the sky and what something looks like it's orchestrated, if all that stuff is natural, why would we assume that human behavior isn't natural too? And although it's like super complex and way more complicated than what we see in the animal world, it, it, these all these like pushes and pulls and struggles and accomplishments, all that stuff together, the evil and the good. It's almost like you can't appreciate one without the other. Without without the evil, it almost seems like the actual good would it would just wouldn't have the same feeling that it has. It has this amazing feeling because we understand loss, because we understand we understand evil, we understand aggression, we understand all these really uncomfortable, unfortunate aspects of humanity. So when we find someone who's awesome, you know, it's just it's that's why it feels so good. If everybody was awesome, we'd be like a bunch of fucking like a nation of spoiled lottery winners, you know, like where we have just no idea how lucky we are, just stumbling through the whole thing. But it's almost like to see the evil and to hear about things like Guantanamo Bay. It's horrific, of course, but it almost like it it, it gives the loving part of humanity more energy. It's almost like inspired to perform stronger acts of love in the face of the most fucked up shit available in 2014. It's it's real weird because I, I think there's a, a relationship there that's unavoidable. And I don't like that feeling. I don't like the idea that we're never going to get our shit together. I'd like to think that people will get our shit, their shit together. I'd like to think that within my lifetime, I would see a massive change in the way people interact with each other. Because I think it's possible with individuals. If it's possible in, with individuals, it should be possible with all of us. But then the other part of me, the more rational part that's not going on emotions and hope, says, I think that this is always how it's going to be. There's, uh, this is how shit keep, keeps moving. If you don't have this, you don't keep moving. If you don't have murder, if you don't have rape, if you don't have horror, you don't have people assaulting people, if you don't have drug overdose, overdoses and car accidents, then you don't appreciate peace then the lake doesn't look so beautiful. Then the birds chirping don't mean as much. It's, the whole thing is reliant upon each other. And the, the, the love that you get, the, the strength of it, is almost dependent upon your understanding of, of evil in the world, dependent upon your understanding of, of death, dependent upon your understanding of, of, of misfortune. Well, just by being human, you're kind of born into that tragedy. We're the only animal that understands that we're going to die. Yeah. And we think, right? We don't know about dolphins. That, that's might, true. They might know us up. <laughs> so, like, my, my cat, who I had since I was 11, I, I love this little beast so much. And um, we just had to put her to sleep finally. She's, like, 20 years old. And um, I, don't think she, I don't think she knew. Like, one day she's just, like, sproinging around, being bad, stealing shit. And then the next day her, like, back legs stop working. And, um, mm. yeah, poor little beast. I it was so sad. But... Um, I think it was like kind of merciful. Like she, she didn't, she didn't know. Like we, we had to know and kind of decide for her. You know. Yeah. Well, it would have just been really slow, especially if she's in a protected environment where she has good food and a warm place to sleep. And it takes a long time for their little bodies to quit. 
but we were both talking about how uh, I have a cat who's she's 17 now. I've had her since she was a little tiny baby. My sister gave her to me, and she was like a little fluff ball. And uh, she does this howl thing at night. We were talking about it's like, you know, they say that it's like the cats don't know what they're doing. They're, it's like a form of cat dementia. Like they, they, they might even have like cat Alzheimer's. She's old as fuck. 17 is really old. But what did you, what was the phrase that you used? That it was like the opera song of death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But, mine does that. How old's yours? Uh, about 15. 16. Yeah. <laughs> Those old cats, man, that's a weird thing they do. She never did that when she was younger. I think it's also, like, you know how when people start to lose their hearing and then they start talking louder and louder to compensate? I think this might be the cat thing. She's like, human, get me food, but she doesn't hear herself, so she has to just scream at the top of her lungs. Maybe. Maybe they just, maybe even darker. Here's where it gets really dark. Maybe that is like nature trying to set them up to get killed. Because they're because it's a nighttime thing. They're out there moaning and howling. I mean, maybe unbeknownst to them that that's sort of like a, a calling card for predators to let them know that there's some sort of a suffering animal. <laughs> and you know, some coyote hears that and it's like, oh shit, it's the dinner bell. You know, maybe they just get hornier the older they get. Yeah, like they're old cougars. Yeah. Like, come on. I haven't had sex ever. I'm about to die. I want it now. Yeah, right? A lot of them have never had sex ever. That's yeah. a good point. My cat's never had sex except for my dog. Yeah. But they don't do that when they go outside, so my theory sucks. Because if they're in danger and fear outside, like when my cat goes outside, she doesn't make any noise. It's only when she's inside, in the comforts of the house, and she lets out that wail. But it might be just to attract predators to figure out a way in through the doggy door. Right. You know? Can you imagine you woke up and you saw a coyote eating a cat in your house? Ugh. That's happened before. Did you hear about that lady in Chile recently? She came home and fucking there was a cougar in her house. <laughs> like in her, they just took all these photos of it. It was like wrestling with the uh, the lampshades or the, uh, the the shades to the window. <laughs> it's just a regular cougar, like an older lady no. just fucking around <laughs> a lamp. Drunk. Like, I'm here. Yeah. Drunk, one shoe on. <laughs> Lipstick's all fucked up. <laughs> fucking with lampshades. Get out of here, lady. <laughs> what are you doing in my house, you crazy bitch? <laughs> No, um, I don't know how we got on that subject. <laughs> cats, old cats dying. Yeah, imagine having yeah. Uh, Bruce Jenner in your house. Look at, look at this guy. Yeah, something's <laughs> going on. This is TMZ's alleged uh, discovery that Bruce Jenner is becoming a woman. Well, he supposedly got his his what larynx scraped off. He or? got his Adam's apple shaved yeah. down allegedly. That's why he's got a bandaid on it. But who knows? That shit could be photoshopped. Well, this is TMZ, and look at those bo- I mean, it looks like he's getting boobs lately, or did he always have that? He's an old guy. Old guys like that, their gravity starts hitting them. Especially, look, I mean, Sylvester Stallone is one of the few guys that's like deep into his 60s and still works out on a regular basis. Most people quit, and Bruce Jenner was this amazing athlete. He's an Olympian. He was an Olympic gold medalist. He was on the cover of fucking Wheaties, and now he's been... It's one of the biggest blows to masculinity in our time is the fall of Bruce Jenner. It's like, what's happened to that guy? Just the way he gets yelled at on that show. Right. <laughs> the way he gets demoralized. He's a fucking Olympian! You crazy freaks are just attention whores. This guy is a goddamn Olympian. You treat him like shit. And he wants to be a woman now. You broke Bruce Jenner. What if this is all just a joke, though? That, like what? a part of like a troll that the Kardashians wrote? 
that'd be hilarious. It could be. I mean, who knows? I mean, we're playing right into it. Right. The, the whole reality thing, the whole reality show thing is a fascinating aspect of our culture. It's absolutely fascinating. I know a lot of people think that it's base and stupid and idiotic. Most certainly it is. It's also quite fascinating that that's become something that people are really attracted to, is to watching the lives of people who have nothing going on that's exceptional. There's no singing. There's no dancing. There's no entertainment. They're just like you and I, allegedly. And that that's become something that people are into. That's really weird. Well, don't you think it's also because reality shows are so cheap to make? Because, like, you don't have to hire writers. You don't have to um, hire talent. You just have to take, you know, people who you don't really have to pay a lot of money, put them in really stressful situations, get ununionized producers who you don't acknowledge are scripting the entire thing, and put it together. It just It's just so much cheaper to do. There's such an economic impetus behind it. I think it's also the, just that it's really effective, too. It's they're, they, they're really high-rated. Like, the Duck Dynasty show got, like, 16 million people to watch it. I mean, that's that's a lot of goddamn people. It's economically effective because it works. People like watching stupid shit, you know? That's, that's a fact. People are tired of thinking when they get home from a job that drains them of any creative juices that they might still have left from their childhood. Every day, it's like a fucking bad battery slowly getting drained down to zero. And they don't have, they don't have the energy, a lot of them, to, to watch anything you know, challenging or fascinating or read a book or you know, partake in a hobby. No, they, they want to drink a beer and they want to watch really stupid shit. Whether it's the Real Housewives or any of that stuff, it's it's really fascinating though. This attraction that we have to it, it's a weird it's a weird symptom of where our culture is. That there's only so many hours of programming on every network in a day, so many hours. You know, you only get like you know twelve hours that people are really actually paying attention, right? And what are you putting on during that time? What are you putting on? You're putting on shit. Everybody's putting on shit, like. The, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like the, the, the way you guys are doing it, like it's, it's almost like you're creating stuff that only idiots would like. And it's a strange thing. Cause it's at the same time as the most beautiful and amazing things are happening on TV. Also, it's at the same time as like Mad Men and breaking bad. Yes. So there's the most high fucking beautiful art and madness on one hand. And then there's, just stupid swill where vain people are being humiliated on the other. But the people who are making those shows, I met them. They're really nice folks. It's just they just have a job. Their job is to make reality TV. I mean, that's where it becomes a catch-22. I know a lot of them. One of my neighbors is, is a producer, makes reality shows. Nice guy. I, thought, I think most people are nice. I mean, so I, I was in Lebanon recently doing this piece for the New York Times about um, sectarian militias in Tripoli. And so I interviewed these sniper dudes. And these guys are like the sharks and the jets, but with rocket launchers and with grenades and stuff. They're two neighborhoods. They shoot at each other. They kill each other. They train like nine-year-old boys to shoot to uh, you know shoot RPG launchers. Like it's fucked up. And I interviewed these guys, and they're really cool. Like they're just they're just like nice, chill dudes, like joking around with you, like sharing cigarettes, um, showing off their you know weapon stash. They're they're nice. Everyone wow. is nice. Wow. Except, except, except when they're not nice, you know? <laughs> what a great statement. Everyone is nice except when they're not nice. That's like Roadhouse reversed. Remember Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse? <laughs> be nice till it's time to not be nice. Oh, God. <laughs> you don't remember? 
That was uh, that was the the big fucking tough guy statement <laughs> in Roadhouse, one I of mean, the great pieces of American cinema. I, man, I'm so I'm so culturally illiterate, but I <laughs> I just I just think that it's peop, most people are pretty cool unless until they're in a context where they're like where it's not to their benefit to be cool or where the rest of the group you know is doing something horrible and then they go right. along with that but just like an average everyday life most people are most people are great they're real fun they'll like joke around with you and have coffee and are cool yeah that gives me hope it gives me hope when i look at how many humans there are there's 300 million of us in this country and how really how little violent crime there actually is because if you know we we know that people just working beside each other on a daily basis in offices and wherever you work in, there's going to develop interpersonal conflicts. There's, you know, there's inter-office dating and then there's drama that comes from that. There's inter-office friendships that go sour. People loan people. There's, there's potential for violence, like literally in every office in America all day, every day. There's always someone who doesn't like someone. If you have an office of 200 people, for sure there's like a few disputes. For sure there's a guy who's fucking always parking in my fucking parking spot. There's a this or that. He always handles my paperwork different. Fuck him. There's, people are... It's amazing how little we kill each other. I mean, it really is quite incredible. The, the, the sheer numbers. The problem is we get hit with the news of the entire country and the world, in fact. Anything extraordinary that happens in other parts of the world, especially cruel, especially nasty or evil, we, we hear about that too. We want to know all the most fucked up shit. So we're dealing with this impossible to understand number of essentially 7 billion human beings. And then we're hearing a surprisingly low number of horrific things for 7 billion fucking people. But our brains are still these caveman brains that are designed for uses of tribes of 150 people. So when we keep hearing about all this bad shit, we're like, imminent danger, danger's around the corner, we gotta fix... Which is the reason, the reason why the government can still pull off something like the NSA and say, we need to protect you from terrorism, so we're going to look at all your girly pictures and all your emails and we're going to listen to all your phone calls because we need to protect from terrorism. What terrorism? What terrorism? What are you talking about, man? There's 300 million of us. More people are dying every day from aspirin than are dying from fucking terrorism. What are you doing? What's really going on? Because if you were really trying to protect people, this is not a good way to do it. It's not a good way to listen to everybody's fucking emails. You guys can't figure out who the bad guys are? Didn't they do bad shit already? Does people just wait their whole life and they're super goody two-shoes and then one day do something really bad? No, not usually, right? So follow the fucking bad people. Find them from the jump. And, you know, you're going to miss a few through the cracks. But don't take away our rights. That's ridiculous. That's some terrorism shit right there because you're making people aware that you're listening to everything they do. You're watching over them. You're looking through their fucking laptop webcam and you're justifying it how? Get the fuck out of here. That's some creepy, weird, stalker shit that you're allowed to get away with because you're the government. I say no. The government is just people. And we vote them in and allow them to have power. We don't allow them to do all this stuff. This is crazy. You can't just look through people's email. That's ridiculous. That's not effective. It's, not, it's ridiculous. It's insanely rude. 
Like, there's so many things about it that are wrong when you're dealing with people who have committed no crimes and, in fact, pay taxes, follow rules, contribute to society, and you're looking through their stuff, too? You look through everybody's stuff? You hold all their phone calls? Who are you? You're just a person. Like, you're a person in an organization. No one granted that organization that kind of power. You guys are criminals. This is criminal activity. You can't just do that. And then they always justify it by kind of pointing to a scary other, like making a bogeyman. Maybe the bogeyman is like scary Arab terrorist. Maybe it's scary inner city black guy with guns. Like they always paint this picture of someone else and be like, oh, look over there. We're only looking at him. We're protecting you. You're the good people. But in reality, I mean, we're all we're all the fucking we're all the fucking same people. And well, there are for sure some horrible people out there in the world. Absolutely. And we have, uh, you know. We have a real issue um, as a society in, 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 in recognizing how much of it is caused by the resentment of the United States occupation of these countries. How many of these evil people have been motivated by things that our own people have done? Like we, need, you know, we really need to look at it in, a, in an honest way before we decide like, what's good and what's bad and, and what we're going to tolerate and what people are going to go after. Like... Who started all this? Like, why is this going on? No, unsurprisingly, when you drone a wedding party and burn some burn people alive, they don't like you. Just shockingly. I mean, isn't that crazy that you're telling me that? Okay, but there's a lot of people who would hear that statement and go, "Oh my God, she's exaggerating." No, they're not. No, there's no exaggeration. You're t- you're That's telling just factual, yeah. You're, yeah, you're telling just one of many stories where innocent people were murdered in this incredibly ineffective way of doing war. They have the balls to call any of that stuff surgical. There's no surgery in war. Bombs are not surgical. These are things that destroy buildings. They burn people alive. You can't pinpoint things like that. My boyfriend went on a program where he got to uh, do illustrations at a drone base. And he actually got to, like, look through, you know, to hang out in the cockpit where they have the drones and to see what you see on the camera. It's not surgical. It's... It's like it's like a blurry, blurry video image, and that's what you're putting decisions of life and death on. Well, did you see the recent thing where the NSA was using metadata? I did, yeah. They were using metadata to locate cell phones that they believed were in the possession of people that they wanted, so they would shoot a missile towards the cell phone. <laughs> and then they do crazy things, like they redefine um, they redefine what winning means. Like they'll be like. Oh, such and such number of um, militants were killed. But the only way that they know they're militants is because they're men between like the ages of 16 and 60. That's like that's the that's the only definition of militant, that you're a man and you're standing on the spot of land. Is it the, the issue that almost all the people that are of that age in that area are resentful of the American troops and they all become militants? I mean, you can't burn people alive just because of what's in their head yeah but 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 no but i mean what i'm saying is like let's imagine it the other way yeah let's imagine if we were being occupied if uh, there was uh afghanistan sent troops and they were in kansas you don't think those kansas farmer dudes would get fucking fired up and go and want every one of them would want to kill the afghanistan invading army of course they would so they all would become militants well, that's that's how they define it. I mean, I'm sure that some of them would just be like, I'm up in my hills. I, you know, just want to, like, mind my own business and have my family and, you know, don't want to risk my life. And I'm sure some of them would be like, fuck you, occupying army. But 
yeah, if you occupy a country, they're going to be resentful of you. Everything about an occupation is awful from like making people go through checkpoints to searching them to raiding people's houses and breaking their shit to hauling people off to jail like that shit makes people not like you unsurprisingly yes unsurprisingly (laughs) but it seems like i mean it doesn't even talking about that it's you can hear the wheels spinning on the other side you can hear people say oh listen you're exaggerating we're making there's a few unfortunate casualties but hey that's the price of war and if it wasn't for that, the war wasn't be going on over there. It'd be going on over here. Molly Crabapple, whatever your real name is. <laughs> well, it's interesting, the metaphor of a few bad apples, right? Mm-hmm. In real life, if you have a few bad apples, they don't just like stay isolated. They poison the whole barrel. That's true. It's actually a really apt and interesting metaphor for um, problems during an occupation or problems on a police force. We just don't view it the right way. But I mean – Everything I'm talking about is factual, documented. They're, you know, acknowledged yeah. by our government. I mean, except the fact that you said that we're such cowards, because I don't think you uh, understand your history, young lady. If you went back and looked over the accomplishments of this great nation, people get very upset at you if you try to like lump Americans and say America we're cowards. I fucking love America. I fucking love New York. I was born in New York. Like when I was in the courtroom drawing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, all I could think was like, you're the man who murdered 2,000 of my fucking neighbors and you blew up my city. Fuck you. But. How very girl of you. <laughs> that was like, that was like such a, a, a chick statement. You know? <laughs> Fuck you. You know, I, I guess dudes would do it too, but it would be a little. You'd have, you'd have deeper dude voices. <laughs> My, my vocal range is somewhat higher than yours. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying about... But No, but it's... I don't think Americans are... How about this? I don't think it's the American way to be cowards, but I think that cowardice has been foisted upon us to excuse horrific shit by our government. I think there's some of that, for sure. And there's also people that feel incredibly disenfranchised and don't know what to do. There's also people that realize that voting itself seems to be wholly ineffective. And then people get into office that you thought were going to make great changes and turn out to be an extension of the past administration in many ways. Oh, God, I agree with you. Like, I was hoping so hard when Obama was elected. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I worked for his campaign the first time. I, like, gave way too much money for him. And I remember that night when he was elected, everyone's dancing on the streets. And the next morning, like, the sky was bluer. And then slowly but surely you realize that the same old shit was happening or even being intensified. Yeah, um, I wonder. I wonder what the story is. I wonder if he tricked us or I wonder if that is just the job. Like you get in there and it's a machine that you 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 have a little influence. You can move things a little bit. But look, things are in place and they've been in place for a long time. And you start talking to international bankers and you start realizing the, the profit motive behind this decision or that decision and, you know, how it could be justified and, and rationalize that and spit it out in a speech. And then that's your day to day. And then you're on that fucking path. You're on that path of justifying and rationalizing shit. And then one day you find yourself talking about Syria and you find yourself on TV talking about Syria and the entire country goes, no, fuck this. There's no support for it. Zero. And everybody's like, okay. Okay, I guess uh, guess we won't go to Syria. And then it just stops. I mean, that, there's never been a better indicator that this whole thing is a charade than Syria. 
the fact that it was of utmost importance to the fact that the president had to make a big press conference and stand in front of everybody and talk about the imminent military invasion of this horrible nation that's killed people. And just that's it. They just killed people. That's all they did. They did essentially what a lot of people do. But we got to get over there. And the entire country went, no. You didn't hear even in the, like, the conservative pundits. No one was for that. No, nah, no one was for that. Man, Syria is such a fucking tragedy. So like when I was over in Lebanon, a quarter of the population of Lebanon now are Syrian refugees. Like they're just fucking blanketing the mountains there. Like you go to the Bekaa Mountains and like there's literally like a fucking tent with a family in it every, every few feet. And I talked to these people and they'd be like, well, that was stupid that he said chemical weapons are a red line. Like, why is it any better to be killed with, you know, shrapnel than it is chemical weapons? And they'd be like, why did he say he was going to he was going to help us? And then he didn't. And I would say, well, because no one in America wanted him to because we shot the bed so much with Iraq. Hmm. I think uh, there's a lot of people that we could go. I mean, if we really wanted to do good in the world and save some people, wouldn't we invade North Korea? Wouldn't that be like number one? Man. I mean, doesn't that seem like that's the bad one? That's that's so many people, though, that you would have to do something with. You know, they're broken people. That's are they, though? They're just trapped. They're trapped in a horrible, sick environment where they have a real dictator who is a murderer. Just. Kills his own family members because he thinks they're plotting against him. He kill, He didn't just kill his uncle. He killed his uncle's family. Like That guy's alive today in 2014. He's not like Alexander the Great. He's not like some Hitler character that we talk about in history books. He's around right now. And he's he kills his family. Yeah. Like they, they, he's just suspecting they were trying to have a coup against him. So he, he murders them all. He's our fucking Caligula. He's dark. And no one talks about going over there. <laughs> There's no talk about it. Well, I mean, South Korea wouldn't want it. Could you imagine having to like try to deal with that many starving, deeply brainwashed people? Well, it would definitely suck, but I think that it would definitely suck. But I think that it's better than the alternative. The alternative is these people stay imprisoned. You have a million plus people. I mean, how many people live in North Korea? How many millions? These poor people are fucked. I mean, they're, they're in one of the most evil dictatorships that we know of. They, they're in a dictatorship where if you didn't cry loud enough or convincingly enough when his dad died, you'd go to jail for six months. So I got to give a shout out to my, uh, one of my best friends here, Michael Malice. He just did um, a book on North Korea, and he's a celebrity ghostwriter. And so he. You don't mean he writes about ghosts. Don't mean he write it. That's about ghosts. Except in this instance, <laughs> he uh, he ghost wrote the uh, autobiography of Kim Jong Il. Oh, he called it Dear Reader. Whoa, I like it, Dear Reader. That's rude. That's almost racist. I am the reader of this country, <laughs> right? It's almost. If you found someone super duper sensitive, they could say that that would be. Are you trying to be racist? No, he's just talking to the reader. I understand, but what are you it's talking like a about? double entendre. Yes, <laughs> there's a double entendre to it, you know? If but, someone super sensitive would really like use that as an excuse to blow up at you right now. Not you. I mean, if you were him, if you wrote that story. But um, his book, one of the things um, it raises money for is there are actually organizations that encourage North Koreans to defect. and. Whoa. And um, give them resources when they do. How do they get out of there? 
So really hard to Yeah, to it's escape. really hard. But there actually are North Korean defectors living in South Korea right now. <sighs> they must feel so lucky. I, I, I watched the whole piece. It was horrific about this guy who left with, and left his family behind. They tortured his family and he, the knowledge that he had of what happened to his family because he got away. It was horrible. It was so hard to watch. He was weeping and weeping and thinking about his children. And I, I, I can't imagine that that's going on today, you know? And I, I know that there's horrible atrocities that are committed in Afghanistan. It's not simply a cut and dry thing that, you know, the United States wants the resources that, that country has. There's also some horrible human rights violations going on there. The, the oppressive regimes, the, the fundamentalist religious groups that run various sects of whatever your, whatever parts of that world that you're talking about, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, there's a lot of bad people over there that it would do the people that are around them much good if they remove those bad people. But those North Koreans, they got it extra bad because there's no plans. There's nothing over there that we can take. If we found like a billion dollars in diamonds under North Korea, if we found you know some sort of natural gas pipeline that was like the greatest supply ever of pure energy, we'd figure out a way to work with that little fuck. <laughs> we'd figure out a way to get in there. They would. They, he doesn't have anything. If they had something, we'd already be there. If they had something, we would slowly weasel our way in there. We would give them some nice things and take care of them and send over some teachers and give them some food and slowly weasel our way in. And then we would eventually be like allies with North Korea. We'd, we'd chop it up. We'd get them to figure it out. But he doesn't have shit. So we get to see what happens when a country has no natural resources. There's no reason why anybody wants to invade you. And you're being run by evil. Like the worst, the worst possible progression of what a human can become. An evil dictator controlling a nation with fear. The amount of pain and suffering that comes directly from that fat little head is insane. I mean, it's insane the amount of power that a guy has if he's a dictator. And that's all going on right now. It's weird. Dennis Robbins over there playing basketball. Do, 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 do. That's the weirdest thing. It's like how they worship the Bulls. You know, like how. The guy's a basketball yeah. fan. Hey, maybe his uncle's a douchebag. Maybe we're out of line. Maybe he killed that guy because he was an asshole. Well, Kim Jong il was, you know, a super movie buff, and he actually kidnapped a South Korean director and his wife to try to bring him over there to start North Korea's film industry. Oh, my God. Did they get him back? I think he eventually escaped, yeah. Oh, my God. He had to escape? He had to escape. Oh, what a crazy fuck. So yeah, the dictators there like they have their they have their hobbies. They're really passionate about them. But we have no reason to go over there. It's that's a fascinating thing when you deal with someone who has in in one hand uh, extreme power because they have this really disciplined army and then they also have nuclear power. They have nuclear weapons and really bizarre that that's also going on in something that's a total complete dictatorship. It's uh, it's 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 a rare thing to get to see a, a nation with that kind of power that also has this really unbelievably brutal dictatorship, but it has it today in in this time. You know where you know we we look back at Nazi Germany or we look back at you know any of the evil empires of the past. It, it's all sort of blurry and, and it's all sort of well you know back then things were different. No 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 no. No, it's right now. It's right now with uh, the civil rights movement of the United States happening, you know, decades ago. It's right here in, in this day and age. 
It's right here after the space shuttle was retired. I mean, it's going on right now. And that guy's just running shit over there. And we don't ever talk about that place. <laughs> Nobody talks about going over there and fixing that. We only go somewhere if you got some good shit. Like, what do you got? You got some oil? Okay, we'll bring democracy. We got democracy. You got oil. Let's work it out. So much fucking democracy we bought to Iraq. So much democracy. Hey, listen, Miss Pessimistic. It uh, takes a little time for our work to uh, plant seeds and take root. Al-Qaeda just took over Fallujah in Iraq. Did they really? Yeah. Oh, well, that's not good. Well, yeah. What What happens now? I don't know. We're out of there. Maybe we go back in because Al-Qaeda's in uh, Fallujah. That'll be the next. Play ping pong in the Middle East. Pull out of Afghanistan, back into Iraq. Maybe that's the move. Do you think that that actually goes on? Like that's the uh, the the grand conspiracy theory is always connected to the idea that there's governments that will create conflict in order to finance a war to go after that conflict and to make sure that people unite against some greater evil. And that in the face of peace, like people become unruly and they want to take over they take over government. They want to like make too much reform. And that the way to keep people in line and in check is to constantly keep them in conflict. That's what I've always thought about the war on drugs. Because drugs aren't a military problem. They're either people putting something in their body recreationally or they're addicts you know, struggling with a disease. They're not something that you deal with with the metaphors of war. And yet we use that so that we can justify civil liberties violations. Not only that, it doesn't necessarily ring true with everyone because we know that there's good drugs too. I don't like the idea of you saying the war on drugs because I think it's stupid. Because what about, are you going to take away my coffee? Guess what? I can handle coffee, dude, and I like it. I like it and I can handle it. You're not, you don't have a war on coffee, okay? Oh, no, we don't count caffeine. Oh, okay. Well, what drugs do you have a war with? And then let's sort it all out logically. Finds out, let's find out which ones you have a, 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 a beef against that makes sense and which ones you don't. But how about a war on assholes? Everybody hates assholes. Where's, when's that coming? You have a war on these ambiguous things. You have a war on these open-ended things like drugs. There's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of, well, you can't have a war on drugs. Maybe you, you don't even say a war on bad drugs. You don't even say let's have a war on addictive drugs. No, it's the war on all drugs. Fuck you. I'm on drug side. I like drugs more than I like assholes that want to universally go after all drugs. Because I think that's stupid. Because drugs represent human ingenuity. It represents intelligence. It represents the ability to extract chemicals and form things that may very well be beneficial. May extend the lives of people you love and care about. May reduce suffering in people. May cure people of certain illnesses. Drugs are not bad. The problem is there are bad drugs. So like the war on drugs is just a stupid idea. No, it's so foolish and misguided and justifies so many evil things. So I look at Stop and Frisk in New York, which is this program where cops hassle black and Latino guys and grope their balls, um, usually under the pretext of trying to find guns. Where do I sign up? Woo! Groper, gropey. Uh, gropey, just for the experience. <laughs> Just the experience. But um, it's all about finding drugs. Right. And it's like you, we have a program where we're having cops feel up teenage guys to find drugs. Is that what it mm. started out as? 
Do you think that there was any motivation to just try to like reduce the amount of thuggish people that were harassing folks? I mean, was there like a motivation behind it? Because it's always nice to say that it's always the cops that did something terrible and they're going after these young Latino kids. But was there a rash of crimes or people feeling intimidated? I mean, sometimes it's a gray area. Sometimes there's both. Sometimes there's a lot of cops that they use it as a green light to go after kids and they're just racist. And then sometimes there's stop. I mean, the idea of stop and frisk might have been like initially because they had people that had found people with weapons. It might have been that they were worried that people would bring weapons to certain areas. So they say it's for weapons, but it's. Guns are kind of big. You know what I mean? Like you don't need to do the super invasive searches like they're doing to look for guns. They're big pieces of metal. You dudes know? Have, some dudes are really good at hiding stuff. You got to be really careful about that. Deep you got to check their balls. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it. whenever you have a position of power like the cops, which is a pretty ultimate position of power, and then you have people that are already feeling disenfranchised because they're minorities, and then you put those together, you're going to have like this instant resentment anyway, especially if you know the, the young kids know someone who's in jail or they've been to jail themselves or they've known someone who's been abused by cops. And for the cop and for the guy, it might be totally the, a, a, a different circumstance. The cop might not be a racist at all. You know, I, the, uh, I mean, I don't think that... It's about like the individual cops' feelings. Like a lot of cops are black and Latino themselves in mm-hmm. New York. I think it's that the systematically it's a racist thing. Right. Um, white guys who are stopped and frisked are about ten times more likely to actually have something on them <laughs> than than black and Latino guys. White guys are stupider. <laughs> or maybe you have to be like really fucking sketchy looking um, to be stopped and frisked if you're a white guy, whereas just being black or Latino gets you stopped and frisked. Or maybe the stop and frisk has made black and Latino guys stop carrying drugs. They just like leave at places. That's possible. If I was a black or Latino guy and I was like really into weed, I'd probably stash my weed all over town. I'd probably tuck it under garbage cans and shit somewhere. I wouldn't want to have it on me. If somebody takes it and they find it, fuck it. At least I don't go to jail. You know, it's not that hard to get weed. But if you were constantly getting bugged by cops. No, it's, it's fucked up. I mean, I don't think the TSA should be fucking groping people either. And yeah. stop and frisk is basically the TSA, but every single day, every time you leave the house. Yeah, believe me, I'm in no way trying to justify stop and frisk. But I think that it's, first of all, it's not the cops' ideas. The cops get their ideas from whoever decides and dictates policy. And it's not the police officers themselves. It's whoever's in charge. Whatever reason they have, I would like to hear it. I would like to know why they would think that it'd be okay to just stop and frisk people. Maybe they've got a legitimate argument. Uh, Fascinating it would be to hear. But it's already hard as shit to be a minority and to grow up in uh, this haves and haves not world that we're living in now. It's already hard as fuck. And if you think that the cops are constantly looking to go after you when you... If you're stopping and frisking someone who's not doing anything, like you're going after someone who's in, absolutely not committing a crime. Like you're just finding a person walking and you're going right to them and just choosing them as someone that you're going to harass. That's crazy. Like you're telling me yeah. you're that bad at finding crime that you got to look for it in places where it's absolutely not happening right now. Are you an investigator? What are you doing? You're going to deep go dig deep into this guy's life and pull up hard drives and find out what he's done. You just find someone and search and search and search until you find a crime. No, you don't, dude. You catch people that either did crimes or in the middle of crimes. You're not future crime. You're not preventing crime. You just decided he might have weed on him. It's you can't do that. That's just creepy. You just can't walk up to people and like take their shit. 
But for the cops, I feel bad for them. I really do. It's a shit position to be in where you're, you're being told that you have to do that. And who knows if they have quotas? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But we know that they have definitely had quotas in the past when it comes to arrests, when it comes to speeding tickets, things along those lines. It's, uh, it's abusive. It's abusive to those officers because they're going to be the ones that are the face of this shit policy. They're going to be the ones that have to go out there and enforce this, these stupid rules. If we had, you know, a better group of people that were in charge of dictating policy, I think we'd uh, probably have a, a, a better relationship altogether between people and police. No, I, I agree with you. And yeah, I just think that things like banning drugs by their nature lead to those sort of police abuses. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, especially when you're looking for pot. Like, come on. Every cop knows. Every cop if a cop's in his 30s, he smoked pot. He just has. You know, he's tried it once. I mean, the odds of him not are like one out of a thousand. So maybe one out of a thousand really hasn't smoked pot. Maybe it's one out of a hundred. Let's go crazy. Let's give him as much room as possible. So they all know that it's not killing anybody. You know, no, you know it's not a real issue. So what are you doing? Like, why, why would you have to arrest somebody for that? It's crazy. It's nonsense. It's, that's the number one nonsense contributing factor to, for why people don't take other drug policies seriously or warnings about other drugs seriously. It's the, 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 the outrage that we have about being told lies about marijuana and the fact that it could get, get you arrested. A cop can just pull your pockets up and find this. Ah, oh, look what I found. And then you're locked in a fucking cage. And that he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah, busting perps. I hate potheads. I put him in jail as much as I can. I had a friend who was a, a, a cop, and he was telling me how he loves to arrest people for pot, even if they have a medical marijuana license. Why? And I was like, why would you do that? I go, why would you do that? I go, do you really think that guy's doing something horrible, or are you just taking advantage of the fact that you can lock him up? And he's like, yeah, you know, you know when, when you're on the job, you know, I just run into so many of these fucking annoying people. I go, so they're so annoying you should lock them up? If they have medical marijuana licenses? like, come on, man, don't do that. Like, that's fucked. And it's like one of the fucked up things about America is that we take locking people up so lightly. Yeah. Taking away people's freedom, locking them in a fucking cage where they might be subjected to violence. Like, we're just cool with that. We imprison the highest percentage of our population of anyone. And this is a grave thing to lock someone in a cage. Like, I don't think it should be done unless someone's fucking violent or a thief or someone who's actually done something bad. It's not for people who do drugs or are hookers or stuff like that. I agree. Both of those things are awesome. Mm-hmm. There's no reason. Yeah, Sh- Cookers should be awesome. It should be just like massages. It should be something that people can choose to do for a living. It shouldn't be so stigmatized. You know, The problem is it's so stigmatized that the whole situation is just sketchy and icky for everybody. No, it's, it should be decriminalized. It is so fucked up that we are locking women up because of what they do with their bodies. Yeah, it's, it's fucked up that you could do it for free. But it's you can't. I mean, it's, there's it's zero victim because not only can you do it for free, it's one of the most desirable things you could do to a person. Like people love it. Like they they sell cars because of it. I mean, how many movies are sold with a, a, a woman's legs, long legs stepping out of a car? A man takes his shirt off and shows his rippling six packs. It's all sex. But if you pay for it, it's a crime. You tra- can we barter? You know, are you allowed to barter? 
Can we use a barter system? I wonder if Bitcoin works with prostitution. I wonder if they could prosecute you for using Bitcoin. If they don't even believe in Bitcoin's money, if it's not real money, <laughs> if it's not real money, maybe that's the argument. Like, man, I don't even believe in Bitcoin. We just play. We have sex together, but we pretend like we're giving each other money. <laughs> well, I mean, sex work is another example of how making victimless crimes leads to police abusing people. I did a piece on the fact that in New York, if you carry multiple condoms, police can arrest you um, for loitering with the intent to be a prostitute. Well, you're either that or you're a woman of loose morals, and we would like to lock you up, keep you off the street, because you might be out there dishing out pleasure <laughs> everywhere you go and do it in a safe manner. Oh, God, no. time for you, you floozy. Yeah, God, no. God forbid people have joy in a safe way. That would be terrible. It's a weird thing. It's a, a weird irony that we all enjoy sex, like almost everyone. Doug Stanhope doesn't have sex anymore. He's the only person I know. Uh, Doug's probably not the healthiest guy in the world, (laughs) except mentally. He's very mentally healthy. But uh, he treats his body like a a can, just throws things in there. He's he's a maniac. But he, he doesn't need sex, apparently. But most people like it. You know, I think most people look forward to it. Most people enjoy intimacy. And the idea that that somehow or another could be a crime just because money's exchanged it's very strange couldn't there be like a really good working relationship that uh, a man and a woman could have where like it was like yes the guy paid the woman money but they actually enjoyed each other's company and they were really good friends and they just had sex like every couple of weeks or so and the guy gave her money and then everybody's cool with it and then the girl just has a few relationships like that so she's sort of a professional prostitute but really what she is is just a girl who has sex with a bunch of guys that she actually likes and she that's that's her job you know i mean people would say no that's awful but why is it awful everyone's just having sex like why is that awful that was the old school model of courtesans. You know, they would have... What is that? Courtesans were... Um, they were sex workers, but they also um, were kind of like very beautiful, like fancy, like escorts. And they, w- they were almost like living luxury objects would be the best way to describe them. What year was this when this was going on? Uh, it lasted for a long time. I'm going to talk about the 1890s in Paris. So uh-huh. you would like... Let's say you were a rich dude. You would hire a courtesan to sleep with her, of course, but also to have this like gorgeous woman on your arm at the opera and also to like cover her in diamonds so you could show how much of your own money you could waste on her. Wow. And she would just be like this cool, smart woman who was also fucking gorgeous, who was also a great lay. And these women would maybe have like three, two or three, like, you know, super rich protectors. They were business women. They would, um, you know, like they'd begin and end relationships of their own accord. They'd maintain awesome households. And these women were some of the richest and most liberated women of their time. <laughs> Powerful rich hookers. Why not? Why not? Why wouldn't it be? Cortisol? Cortisans. 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 Cortisol is the shit that you, like, you get nervous, stress, right? Yep. Cortisans. That's interesting. I never heard that before. So it's like just a really intelligent version of prostitution and really effective. Yeah, like a mixture of a prostitute and someone who's an escort, you know, in the original sense of like escorting you places. Yeah. Yeah. Professional escorts. That's such a weird thing because I, until everyone sort of figured out that it means prostitution, a lot, a lot of people like thought, okay, so people just hire people for dates. That makes sense. Like you say, if you have to go somewhere and you're supposed to bring a date, you just hire this person to be your date. I guess that's effective. I think people need that. And then I realized, oh no, no it's just people. 
Some people still do it though. Some people still use them as a date where they, they, they like are in town for a business meeting and then they take them out to dinner and then they, they nail them and then oh, well, that's, then wash that's, them off that's and sex them though. Yeah. That's sex. Yeah. But it's like you know, a whole like six hour, eight hour night. Oh, you know what so I mean? It's not just like, just, like straight to the room and it's like, oh, how many flowers? You know, it's not like that. That's weird. Yeah. It's, it's weird that, uh, that we have this giant stigma about, about sex so much so that it's illegal to sell it's and it's completely culturally like how we accept it how our culture accepts it that's all it is i mean it's not it doesn't make any sense logically it's just something that we've sort of like uh chosen but then again if any one of my friends turned into a prostitute it'd be really sad really yeah i wouldn't Why? want them no, I, I, that... I think i'm just being a hypocrite i'm telling you i'd be really sad i'd be like just can't believe someone you know like is forced to sell their body for sex. But they're not, um, I mean they're not they're not being forced like you know except in the way that you right. know all of us are forced to work for a living, you know. No, you're right. I'm just being honest. I yeah. I really wouldn't be happy like if uh someone I used to work with, say who someone on the set of a show that I worked on, all of a sudden she became a prostitute. And everybody was like, "Remember Wendy? Yeah, she's a prostitute." You'd be like, "What? Remember Esther?" Yeah. I mean, some some of my friends are <laughs> sex workers <laughs> and they're like fucking I Some mean, of your friends are sex yeah. workers? Party, Party at Molly Crab Apples. No, but they're they're okay with it. They're fucking amazing, badass women. Some of them like their jobs. Some of them are just doing the jobs, you know, to make money. The same mm-hmm. way anyone does a job to make money, right? But they're not forced. They're amazing, badass women with agency. Nice. Well, look, that that's logical. Your your way of describing it is powerful and empowering and logical. Me, I'm going with emotion, and I'm saying I'd be sad. If I ran into someone, they found out they were a hooker now. But I, I think you'd meet you'd meet some people who are sex workers, and you'd be like, "Oh, you're really cool," and then you get over it. I'm sure. I'm, I definitely would. I know I would. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I really don't. But I'm just. I think that a lot of people who are doing it don't want to do it. And I think whenever I see someone that doesn't look, if I ran into someone that I really knew and they were working at Wendy's behind the counter, I'd probably be bummed out at them too. You know, that's not what you want to do. What's worse, being a hooker or going to working at Wendy's? I don't know. There's bo- different levels. Suck. If you're a massage parlor hooker, then yeah, that's horrible because you're probably just every 30 minutes having a new stranger. But if you're like one of the high end escort call girls, you know that's probably pretty nice. You know you're you're making three thousand dollars, four thousand dollars up. You know some nights. Yeah, logically, I mean, it's really all about perception. The perception part is where it becomes a big issue because uh, I've said this many times. But why is it? totally acceptable to be a massage therapist but if someone says what do you do i jerk off guys you know like that's terrible yeah like but if you're like a massage therapist like oh okay you give pleasure with your hands you jerk off guys oh you give pleasure with your hands i mean it's the same thing yeah very little is different about it you're paying someone to do something to you that they probably wouldn't do for free they want that money so they give you a rub down they you know work their elbow in your back it feels great i mean that's the whole idea is pleasure we're okay with that unless it's, oh, not this area. This is a bad, bad, naughty area. Don't you touch that for money. We have to be in love for you to touch that. Fascinating. 40 bucks. That's all? Yeah. Will you guys talk so I can pee? Sure. I'm sorry. I drank too much coffee. <laughs> Give me five minutes. Not even. Um, your artwork, you, you, you also had a, you worked with DC online, didn't you, at one point? Yeah, I did. I, um... Unfortunately, the imprint got canceled, but yeah, I did, uh, me and my best friend, John Levitt, we did a story with DC Online. 
And you also have worked with uh, Patton Oswalt. I saw you did like a, a poster of his. How'd yeah, you... I did the key art for his for his uh, new show, uh, Tragedy Plus Comedy is Time. That's great. He's so fucking cool. When he asked me to do that, I like squealed. I was so excited. Yeah, here's the, uh, if you look right on the screen, the poster right there. It's awesome. Um, how long are you in town for here in Los Angeles? Are you here for any work or get? I'm just uh, doing doing meetings, like meetings with my agent, meetings with some producers and production companies, and just bullshitting with my friends. But I'm just here till tomorrow, till tomorrow uh, night. Unfortunately, oh. just move out here. I should move out here. It's fucking warm here, unlike New York, which is this hell of sleet. I couldn't deal with that at all. That's too much. I don't know how you, how anyone lives in that, and especially when you could just live here and have this every single day, the same weather. I don't get why you would do that. Is there a reason that keeps you in New York? Do you just like the scene? Do you, have you always lived in New York? I'm from there. I'm like a fish that's used to like deep right. sea pressurized environments, and I'll explode if I'm somewhere else. Really? Yeah. So you have to have the constant energy of the city. I have and all to that stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it just like makes you jagged and sharp, and it's really hard to live there. Like, it's the only city where if you move into an apartment with a washer dryer, you have made it. You are the elite with your washer dryer there. Wow. New York, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy place to live, but. That's what you get if you want that big hive thing. You want that being a beep beep being a part of it all. Did you, oh, did see you that? Pat Oswalt's? Yeah, I did. I did that for that's for uh, his uh, his last thing. Wow, that's beautiful. He's he's so awesome. I was so honored that I got to do that. He's a very cool guy. I love that you have such a distinctive style. Like I can see your stuff online now after finding out about your work, and I immediately recognize it as yours. It's like there's only a few people that that works with. Like Alex Gray is a big one, obviously. You know, you're familiar with Alex Gray. I am. I fucking love him. I saw his work the first time I was 18. It was at Tibet House. And you should meet him. I want to meet you him. You got to meet him. You got to go to that place. No, it, the way that he like takes these people and he makes them into like these hyper-colored veins and tendons and he kind of shows like what everyone is under the skin. He's amazing. Yeah, what were you saying before I interrupted you that the, the I, first time you were introduced to him or you found out about? Yeah, I was at uh, this place called Tibet House that had exhibits of Tibetan art and they had a whole show of his because he had a, a, something that was kind of influenced, I think, by the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. And I was like 18 and I saw that and I was like, oh my God, this man is a master. Yeah, he's a really nice guy too. Like, I, I, t- I, mean, I don't want to make this week a Alex Gray love fest because we were talking about him yesterday, but he's just such a, a real sweet, gentle guy, like a real loving guy. And he's also the only person that I've ever met that created his own religion. Like he has a religion that's tax-free status. He has, he's exempt. Like the federal government gave him tax-free religious status. And he, he's serious about it. He's b- building this intense temple and it's essentially all based on visionary psychedelic experiences and this this really ch- pure like love that he has for people and for the world and for just the the way he interacts with people he's a like real legit guy i mean he's he really is a guy who's been over to the other side on numerous occasions and brought back an incredible amount to me, I don't think anybody's ever captured psychedelics in visual form like he has. He, he, he's captured them in this most amazing and representative way. Is the, it's so representative of the, the, the actual real psychedelic experience itself that it'd be impossible for someone to create if they hadn't had those experiences. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, I am like such um, a neophyte to psychedelics. I've done mushrooms once in my life. That That's like my entire experience. And even that... This all, what is this? It's Alex Gray's. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, damn. Hall of Sacred Mirrors or something like that. Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. You should do mushrooms with Alex Gray. 
Fingers crossed. Listen, we can we can introduce you for sure. He's got a place in upstate New York that he's building this uh this what does he call it? I think that's what this is, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors or the Cosmos.org. <clears throat> no, that's the new that's the place uh, that he had in New York. He's uh, got the uh the place that he's building. He's building this temple, but the outside of it is his art. Like three dimensional images, <laughs> like these these uh, fractal faces that Entheon. Yeah, Entheon, yeah. Pull this fo- the image of what Entheon looks like. Pull the uh <clears throat> that's it right there. That's the that's the actual building itself. And he uh, he did a Kickstarter and funded the construction of this thing, and it's going to be insane. I mean, he's going to build this in gigantic three dimensional piece of art. And if you scroll back up where you just were, there was th- something with him ha- standing with a guy behind. Look, see, like he's doing stuff like that. That's I think that's three dimensional as well. And he's because he, it is right. That's like a sculpture, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's going to use the kind of technology that you use to create these gigantic sculptures, and they're going to do the entire building in it. Like, that's what the actual building scroll, – scroll back up. That's what the actual building is going to look like. That's going to be insanely beautiful. To me, this is what art is. I, I hate the idea that art is just this thing that you pin to a gallery wall like a dead butterfly. To me, art is something that you have to live with and you have to interact with, and what he's doing is fucking art. Well, he's definitely doing he, – he, he, is definitely doing art, but he's definitely doing his own thing. I mean, I've never seen anybody's work that looks quite like that. And the, but that's what I was saying about your stuff too. You have a very distinctive style, and it's hard to describe a distinctive style when you like like if you see like Alex Gray and like how do you know it's Alex Gray? Oh, dude, you just recognize it right away. But your stuff is kind of like that too. Like I don't know why I know that it's your stuff, but when I see it, I can pretty I'm pretty pretty accurately tell man thank you so much but what is that you're welcome but it's awesome stuff obviously it's beautiful artwork but it's also so distinctive and i I'll never really truly understand what it is that i that you pick up on so picasso has this line that style is the residue of trying to get it right it's i think with a lot of <laughs> artists well we're trying to like get reality but then who we are filters that like it's like our handwriting you know right yeah and, and like my eyes, they see things curvy, they see things hyper-detailed, they see things kind of subversive and perverted, they see things kind of like whimsical and mean. That's just like how my brain works. And has your style changed in any way as you've grown older? Did, when you I mean you've been drawing for so long, when did you start developing this sort of subversive style? Well, kind of one of my big formative moments as an artist was there was this club in New York or there is this club called The Box that was the sexiest, most depraved, most perverted, most waste of money, most gorgeous club in New York. Like it was a place where people would blow through like 10K on bottle service and there were like porn stars hanging from hoops over the bar and world-class circus performers. And when I was 24, I got the job as the house artist there. I got to sit down next to the stage and I got to just sketch people. And this... Like this kind of – this is how I came of age, you know, sitting on that nightclub stage, drunk out of my fucking mind, drawing beautiful girls and fire eaters and, you know, like fucking crazy, depraved Weimar Berlin-style performances. Like that that's what made me. Wow. And so uh, when you look back, which I've always found really fascinating about artists that they go through periods. Like this is like, you know, Picasso obviously went through very many classic periods. 
do, do, do you have like different uh, different periods of your art where you recognize like this is when I was young and I you know this is how I saw the world and does it represent that to you? Oh God, so much! Yes, you fucking nailed it. I mean, a few years ago, I started doing more journalistic stuff where I would go to a place like Gitmo or to Lebanon and I would draw it. And I mean, it's still the same because I'm making it. You know, the style is still very similar. But it's different because it's not just this crazy, surrealist, you know, blah, out of my head thing. It's trying to capture reality. It's trying to capture what that kid looked like with the rocket launcher over his shoulder. Wow. And so what led you to this, like, socially conscious work that you're doing now? Like, what led you to try to expose all this stuff that's driving you crazy about the world? So I was always pretty political, but I didn't want to do political art because I felt like it would just be this preachy lie. Because a lot Mm. of it's really bad. A lot of it is, like preachy and bad and it's like a certain demographic you know or or even it's good but it's just for a certain demographic what demographic gets the preachy art well like white people right for sure yeah something like that yeah. white people want to show you how awesome they are but i mean even like like shepherd fairy is a really cool graphic designer and everything like his stuff you know th- this isn't a diss to his stuff but if you look at a shepherd fairy thing you know like either i'm of the demographic this is for or i'm not you know it it looks like how we expect activist art to look like and i um i just i just didn't want to do that like my work was always more girly more whimsical more fucked up and then um when occupy wall street happened and when wikileaks happened um and when a lot of sort of the shit that went down in 2011 happened, I felt like it was this real moment where I had to take sides. I felt like I was being a fucking coward, not taking sides. And so uh, the first thing I did was I started drawing people down at Occupy because there is this media image that everyone down there was, you know, a white guy with dreadlocks hitting a bongo. But when I went down there, there were fucking construction guys. There were teamsters. There were nurses. There were teachers. Um, there were all sorts of people down there. And I wanted to show people what that looked like. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, everybody always has that immediate um, image. You know what I have the image of? Did you ever see the video where Peter Schiff goes down to Occupy and he's representing the 1% and he has like – he debates all these different people? Um, You know, I might have. I'm not sure though. It's a brilliant video because Peter Schiff is – He's a financial genius, you know, and, and he makes all these people look really stupid because a lot of them really don't know exactly why they're there. I mean, they do. They think that there's, the world is ugly and that greed is terrible. But when they start defining capitalism to him and he starts explaining to them what's actually wrong with the system and what they think is wrong with the system and why they're incorrect, they get tongue-tied and they start talking in cliches. And there's, there's not no real clarity to what they're trying to say. So we always assume that it's like those highlight people. Yeah. I, the way I've always described Wall Street and Occupy, especially Occupy Wall Street, is that it's like white blood cells moving to a sick area. Like they know there's something wrong there and they're piling up all around it. Like that's – there's never been more clear – like it's hard to get people to stay somewhere. Yeah, it's hard to get people to group up and like camp out and stay in one and all agree to keep meeting back at this one area. You got to have a really fucked up spot to get people to do that because that's just not normal human behavior. People have lives. They got shit to do. They got friends. They got family. You can't get them to hang out in a park. Like in def- winter? No. In fucking New York winter? Yeah, you have to have some serious devotion for that. Yeah, you have to have a real issue. There's got to be a real issue. And it's I mean, really something up. And I think like what that guy did, it was a little unfair because... Of course he, it was unfair. <laughs> That's well, what Peter Schiff does. He's, and also, it's, it's like... looking slick. Mass movements, 
you can't have a mass movement where every single member of that mass movement is an articulate genius who can spell out the theoretical basis for it. Of course. And look, Peter Schiff is a, um, a fantastic speaker. It's a total mismatch. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, I had a hard time when he was on the podcast. Like, he does it. He, he's, first of all, he's very well read, very smart, and very opinionated. And he's used to these shows where you do these, like, seven-minute bursts. So you have to, like, just just go, 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 go with your points. And he has the ability to spit out information and, you know, and relevant information, like, incredibly quickly and very strong cadence and a regular person who's like can't believe they're even on camera and then there's a microphone in front of their face and they know that the cameras they, they, they hope they don't want to look stupid but they're not accustomed to this feeling so they're they're very out of place they feel very weird they feel nervous and insecure that's not an accurate representative nah. of, of a real debate or a real conversation between those two you're dealing with you're like catching them in a really like weak and vulnerable place you're flustering them yeah, and how you look good in the media, it's such a skill, you know, it's such a performative mm-hmm. thing, like being able to do that. Like most people don't do that. They are not trained in that. Yeah, that's something that people don't recognize because it looks easy. You look at someone like Ryan Seacrest, okay? Ryan Seacrest when he's on television, does that guy ever flub his words? You know? Ryan Seacrest, what he does looks incredibly easy. But if a regular person had to go and do Ryan Seacrest's job, you would do it so badly. It would come off so awkward. It would be so strange. You'd be reading cue cards and you'd fuck up. You would say someone's name wrong. There'd be a lot of things you would get wrong. It just looks smooth, so you assume it's easy because it looks like it's fairly easy for him to pull off right now. This doesn't look like coal mining, but it's it's still quite difficult to do. So if you take a guy like Peter Schiff, who's a black belt in talking... And you just feed him to these poor, you know, pe- people who have no idea that they were going to be in a debate when they woke up that morning. You put a camera on him. He's going to feast on them. He's just and he's he's also super successful. So he can kind of back up what he said with with proof. Talk about how many people he employs. And he's like, how many people do you employ? I employ 150 people. Like, do you don't think that I'm contributing? I have 150 people that work directly. And then what does someone say to that? And they're like, you're greedy, man. Like, it's not, <laughs> they need to have time to it's, yeah, research it's not, this debate. It's, it's not fair. Yeah, it's just not a fair, it's not a fair thing. No, it's not fair. But it's funny, though. It's funny. But that's what most people think of when they think of Occupy. They think of those guys. You're greedy, man. They don't think of the people that are just circling this disease and looking at this and going, okay, you know, I, I can't stand anymore and stand by and pretend that this isn't an unfixable system that is so easily manipulated and so obviously corrupt. And this is what runs the country. This is what runs our financial system. This, this system of politics, the system of uh, special interest groups, influencing politics, corporations, spending money on things, people altering the, the regulations and the rules in order to profit more and make more money and the ability to set up fake things that affect the price of stocks and derivatives where you things where you're betting on things to fail and there's a whole economy based on betting on things to fail that's even bigger than the real economy stop yeah it's just bullshit built on air like i have a company i I have employees you have a company you have employees we do not fucking get bailouts from the government if we fail at our company yeah that like pay back not only you know what we lost but all the profits we would have made what is going on in wall street has nothing to do with the way that 
businesses were supposed to run. It's just a giant Las Vegas casino of madness and shit built on air where no one can possibly lose because the government will step in and pay things back. Yeah, it's just weird that there's one business that's too big to fail and it's the business of controlling the money. That's the only one because there's other businesses that took gigantic hits during the economy, during the economic collapse. One of them uh, that you're never going to hear about anybody bailing out is the porn business. Porn business disappeared. I mean, not totally disappeared. Obviously, they still make porn, but they, um, when the internet came along and all their content started being uploaded on BitTorrent and uploaded on all these free sites, these guys lost some untold millions of dollars because the industry itself, like, like shrunk down this totally different kind of thing. They they were making money hand over fist selling DVDs before the internet came along. It's totally true. And like girls who, you know, girls and guys, you know, who a generation ago would have been making fucking bank mm-hmm. are making so little per scene. Also, now um, this one company, Manwin, controls so much of the market and they control the cam sites in addition to... Wait a minute, Manwin? Manwin. <laughs> Google the shit. <laughs> but what a name. I know, right? Manwin. <laughs> and... You know, people are just having to work harder, do, you know, tougher things for less and less money. Tougher things. I love when you say that. (laughs) Tougher things when it comes to porn. That's dark. Well, it is. I mean. Dark images. It is like being a fucking athlete, being a porn star. Like you're, you know. Much like an Olympian. I think so. (laughs) Well, I guess so. You mean you have to perform. You're physically doing things. You're using your body in a really demanding way that can potentially, like, be injurious. That's for the enjoyment of other people. I mean. It's not that different from, you know, playing football and, you know, fucking bashing your head against someone else and maybe getting a concussion for, you know, the joy of other people. Well, it's probably safer. I would say it's safer. It's yeah. Harder, it's, it's hard to get into that football thing that is the porn thing, probably. True. Fair dues. <laughs> it's, you, don't, you don't get drafted to be in porn. If we had drafts for porn, boy, that would really step up the quality of the porn. Could you imagine if there was a draft? If we were so open as a society that, like the NFL draft, we had a porn draft, I'd do it. What would you Sign do? Me up. What would you do? You'd be like one just of the solo actors? masturbation. <laughs> Are you that good? Are you that good that you're that confident? Oh, yeah. Do you have a style or a flair yeah, to the way you do it? I do like one this way and then one like on the tip, so it's like Dragon Ball. Hmm. So you're performing magic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to pay to see that. So I don't think you have a business proposal. I don't give think it to you, you for free. You don't have to pay anything. You're my buddy. Oh, that's so sweet. So I can get a password. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who knows how much money the porn business lost? They vanished. But you're not allowed to say that. Man, I know girls that are making shitloads of money on cam right now. So it's, oh, that's the new thing, right? Yeah, all cams. Yeah, the, the cam stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the new thing is. What do you think is going to happen with this virtual stuff? Because I'm I'm really fascinated by Oculus Rift. Um, uh, ever since Duncan Trussell let me try his on, he has a, an older model apparently, which is a lower pixel, right. uh, l- lower um, that's the one I resolution. Have. Yeah, yeah it's, it's still incredibly impressive, and I think that's the future of pornography for sure. Is those things like completely interactive pornography? I can see that where you actually like were looking uh, through like a POV thing. Yeah, like you could be the woman or you could be the man. You know, you, you, would, you would see this person having sex with you. You'd put on this, this thing where the camera was probably in glasses that you were wearing or something and watch someone have sex with you and have, watch you having sex with them. And then, you know, I mean, that would be like the ultimate POV for someone. 
And that's, I would think that that would be the way your brain would get the most turned on because that would be the the way that you can most relate to. Just seems like that's just what's going to happen because it's the Oculus Rift is so bizarre. When you're looking up and looking around, you realize this is a true three-dimensional environment they've created. I haven't tried it yet. I tried Google Glass, which was oddly disappointing. And yeah. it's, it's kind of um, – though. do you know what's hilarious? They don't have voice recognition on it. So you can go up to someone else who has Google Glass and be like, image search, goatsy, <laughs> and it will totally fucking pop up. You can direct other people's Google Glass by talking That's close awesome. to them. Oh, no. I did not even think about that. I used it. it. Uh, I have a friend who works for Google, and I, I used it. Uh, I didn't think I would ever use it in real life, though. I like a phone. I, I like know, right? being able to like text someone. I like being able to pull up an image, and I see it on this big phone. I don't want to see it in this weird thing that it's here, and I see it big in front of me, and it's just goofy. I mean, I'm sure like in five years there are going to be fucking contact lenses that like make you suction yeah. you into the network at all time. But as like a first generation device, it's just I didn't even have any preconceptions. But man, it is fucking it is doofy. It is a doofy fucking device. Totally put perfectly doofy. It is a doofy device. But I think it's a it's it's a the predecessor to the finished product. Like you said, it's like okay, like if I had to tell you that uh, you know your your trip back home to New York is going to be a by horse and buggy, you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? That shit's gonna take months. Yeah, that's how you do it. That's how you get to New York. Like no no no, you get on a plane, stupid. Like what are you talking about? Like someone had to do a horse and buggy for someone to invent a plane. They didn't just invent a plane right off the jump and figure out there's got to be a place called California. Let's uh, hope that when we fly over there there's runways no they had to build runways they had to set up the fucking gas stations for the airplanes over there before they can talk somebody into flying so there had to be steps this google glass is the wagon train this is a covered wagon and then one day there's going to be a ferrari and that fucking thing is going to be somewhere inside your head it's probably they'll just probably insert it behind the back of your neck right into your skull and it'll integrate your fibers, your tissue, your neural fibers will grow over it or something, and it'll become a part of your brain. You'll be able to access the internet 24-7. It'll work on the electricity of your own body. There'll be no need for a power source. Occasionally, people have a bad reaction. Yeah. But those would be like, it'd be funny if those were cigarette smokers. Only cigarette smokers. Everybody <laughs> had to quit smoking cigarettes or you couldn't use a neural implant that killed the tobacco industry. A, a win-win. A win-win for everybody. See, this This is uh, seeing uh, the world through your partner's eyes. So what you do is you get your girlfriend, and you're both sitting there with the Oculus Rift, so that's all you can see is each other's bodies, though. So mm. so it's like, all right, now move your hand down your chest. So you're, like, you're looking down in the Oculus Rift, and it looks like you have boobs, but you don't. But you've, uh, Whoa. Yeah. I did a project in December where I was wearing glass and I, I had my friend Tim Poole hack them so they could live stream and I was drawing uh, this porn star, Stoya. And um, the idea was I wanted people to see what it was like for me to draw through my eyes. And I was thinking about it. Like, they, they did. I mean, they literally were looking through my eyes, but it almost felt more like they were staring over my shoulder instead. You know, like, it, it was... It was almost the experience, but not quite. Mm. And I feel like the Oculus Rift, it must be kind of the same, like just this uncanny valley mm. realm of, or of almostness. That's a great phrase, uncanny valley. They, they use that in the video game industry. Because uh, like NVIDIA, they allowed me, uh, when I was doing that sci-fi show, to come to their studios in Northern California. And they showed me this new technology that they have that's based entirely on like a, a real person's face. Um, and it's so insanely, insanely realistic, like incredibly, incredibly realistic. 
And it's just about bridging that uncanny valley. That's how they kept talking about it. But I think that once this Oculus Rift gets to that point, things are going to be very, very, very strange. Because they're going to be able to recreate worlds in there. I don't think we understand or we can even grasp the kind of impact it's going to have when you have an indistinguishable world that you can enter into with putting on these Oculus Rifts and you all of a sudden are on Oz and you're going down the path and you talk to Dorothy and you might even be wearing a suit that covers you with sensors that allow it to replicate physical touch. So Dorothy might grab your hand and you might be on a, this treadmill that can move in any direction and you're moving forward like they have these things where the only thing that's going to freak you out is the fact that you know you're kind of moving on a treadmill. Once you get that becomes normal, like the normal way you walk, you're going to accept the fact that you're in this fucking weird mystery fantasy world and no one's going to want to live in real world anymore. Real world's going to get very strange. So, like, when I was 17, I read um, – I was reading Plato. And, um, you know, he has the, the cave metaphor, right, where the people are watching the shadows on the wall and they're getting into fights with the shadows on the wall. And um, they think that those shadows on the wall are all there is to life. And if you would try to get them out of the cave, they even, like, fight you because they want those fucking shadows on the wall. And at 17, it was before the internet was quite so immersive. And I, I was, like, trying to make the cognitive leap and, leap and imagine what that would be like. And now here I am, you know, 13 years later, getting into earnest fights on Twitter with shadows on a glowing, on a glowing screen as if that's real life. Well, Twitter is somewhat on the other end, though. That is sort of real life. It is, but we're still – it's absolutely real life, but it's also still flickering lights at the same time. It is definitely that. Well, it's also the disconnect that's not present in nature. This, when human beings are interacting with each other, we're supposed to be able to see each other. Yeah. We're supposed to feel each other. When you say something, it could be very subtle and you see someone like maybe take it the wrong way and you're like, oh, no, 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 no I don't mean that. I mean, And they go like, oh, like all that's missing – when there's a video or text, especially text, like have you ever sent someone a text and you were totally joking yeah. and they're like, what the fuck, asshole? And, and you're like, are you, are you being serious? Like, no, I'm not being serious. Like, come on. You don't know that I'm joking? You're like, but if someone just reads your words with a, they put a different intent in it, they can decide you're like the worst piece of shit ever. They can just decide. And with the same words, can decide you're completely different. Can decide, oh, that's just Tom. He's fucking silly. He sends me these silly things. Like me and my friends, like Ari Shafir will send me something. He'll, he'll, like the other day, he, uh, I, I sent him a tweet. And he says, thanks, brother. I'm going to let you eat the heart of my next abortion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think he's serious, all right? <laughs> you know? He's actually serious. He's not. He's not serious. But but you know what I mean? It's like, I don't even know what I mean at this point. I do, but <laughs> it's kind of pointless. People look to be upset. That's my point, I guess. Ron Jeremy's wrecking it's too much ball. of that. I definitely want to see that. <laughs> it's great. He actually sings his own... Uh... I put you high up in the sky And now you're not coming down It slowly turned, you let me burn And now we're ashes on the ground Don't you ever say I just walked away I will always want you It's shot by shot I can't live a lie Running for my life 
I will always want you. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. Is this a real Miley Cyrus song? Is that what this is? Yeah. yeah. He did a shot by shot, so it's exactly like the original video. I wonder whose idea that was. It's a great idea yeah. for him. There's also a really good RoboCop remake that Channel 101 has done. I don't know if you've seen yet. Yeah, everybody keeps telling me about that, but I haven't watched it. There's a good scene where it's just a bunch of dicks getting shot. Hey, I don't think I think you're supposed to say spoiler alert before you say something like that. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Ron Jeremy's a nice guy. There's a guy who's been around. It's also this will sound kind of strange, but like I find his version kind of touching because like no like Millie Sears I mean she's like this polished product of you know like perfect you know it's a perfect fucking thing you know she's like this auto-tuned voice you know gym mm-hmm. tone body's perfect and like he's this kind of like <laughs> this like flawed you know old old out of shape dude and he's like you know with not a great voice and he's like singing these like canned market tested lyrics and there's like something almost like like it actually seems like maybe Ron Jeremy actually was in love with someone once I don't know there's something touching about it I'm sure he was I, I feel that too. I feel real love in his words. <laughs> yeah, he's not that polished thing that is Miley Cyrus. Have you ever heard Miley Cyrus sing uh, Dolly Parton? Jolene? Yeah, yeah. I actually Amazing. really liked it. Yeah, I it's thought it was beautiful. It was fucking lovely. I love that song. She's got a great voice. Like, someone should write shit like that for her. You know? I mean, she's got a great voice. Like, who knows who orchestrates all this stuff? She's a young kid. You know, I mean, who, who the. Who the fuck at 18 can, you know, tell record companies what kind of music you want to make and what producers you want to work with, you know? Who knows? Maybe she'll turn out to be a, a great singer. She's got an unbelievable voice, though. Yeah, the Jolene thing was fucking extraordinary. Yeah, really incredible. Like, like real soulful. Like, it's uh, not not like... You know, there's there's songs where people sing and you know that they have, like, a good quality voice, but it just feels manufactured. Yeah. It just feels It feels fake. And then there's Janis Joplin. Yeah. Where it's just so authentic. Like, to this day, if I'm in my car and I'm listening to, like, XM or something like that and Janis Joplin comes on, take another little piece of my heart, that, come on, that you think about her just singing that, take it, take another little piece of my heart now, ugly, fucking weird hippie bitch who just can sing like an angel, just this weird, lived voice. She had this quality of her voice that you just never heard before. Just so authentic. Just undeniable. Like you couldn't, there's no way that Janis Joplin couldn't have been a star. You, you could have heard her at a coffee shop and just dropped everything you're doing. Call everybody. You got to get a record guy over here. You got to record this. Like this is, this is some unusual shit. And there's some other people that they do that. They have this, they have this beautiful voice, and they have to do the little fluctuations. But you don't care. You don't feel anything. When you see those fucking people, like those Janis Joplin types, that can just they can make you feel things. I mean, making people feel things in an authentic way, not in like the bullshit mechanical, you know, tearjerker way, but an authentic way is such a rare fucking gift. Being yeah. able to do that and. You need to like fucking grab those people and elevate them because, my God, they can take you out of yourself. No doubt. And the music especially, to me, there's something about really good music that completely changes my state of just my state of body, my state of feeling. Like it can give me goosebumps. A really good song can give me goosebumps. Like the other day I was driving home and Radar Love came on. You know that song? You ever heard that song? No. Oh, God. It's, it's a, like a one-hit wonder band. From the 60s or 70s. Pull that, pull that up, Brian. 
It's the greatest driving music of all time. And when I was uh, 18 years old, I had this girlfriend that moved to Western Massachusetts. I was living in Boston. I was living in Newton. And she moved like an hour and a half away. And I used to have to drive to go visit her. And my cars were always pieces of shit. So it was always a death drive. <laughs> and one time I broke down in a snowstorm halfway to visit her. It was a fucking huge disaster. But uh, I had a cassette. And I would play this song, Radar Love. Because it's, it's all about driving. It's all about driving when you're exhausted and just keeping your foot on the gas. And this song came on the other day, and my whole body tingled. Like I'm driving, and I I heard it come on. Like as I changed the channel, it was right where the drum starts beating right here, right here. And that's right when I hit the channel. And I was in the car, and I was driving, and it was late at night, and it. First of all, my whole body started tingling, and it brought me immediately back to being some half-retarded 18-year-old driving my piece-of-shit Audi Fox that could fall apart at any minute. Wheels could fly off, and I'd go into fucking oncoming lanes. Listen to this shit, though, dude. Some dude did this decades ago. And today... And it's half past four and I'm shifting gear. That's a powerful fucking song. I they have love radar that. love. She sends it out and he gets in the car and fucking guns it over there. That is fucking beautiful. It's Thank beautiful. you for introducing that to me. It's tingly. It gives me tingles. Fucking perfect. I gotta I gotta get going. I have another fucking appointment. Get I'm sorry. the fuck out of here, Molly. Is there anything we can do to promote? Is there anything we um, can say? Is there anything people should visit? Is there uh, anything people should buy? Okay, you could. Uh, my website is mollycrabapple.com. I have some prints on there if you'd like to get them. I'm working on my memoir for HarperCollins, Drawing Blood. It'll be out in 2015, so that's a while. And you can follow me on Twitter at mollycrabapple. Molly, thank you very much. This is a lot of fun. We've got to do this again. I would love that. This was Let's amazing. Do it again. She has a lot of collection art books also on Amazon. Oh, that's okay. Where I bought them. Well, tell us which, what are the names so people should go out and get those. Uh, I've got two art books out um, Devil in the Details and Week in Hell beautiful i will be buying those as soon as this podcast is over ladies and gentlemen amazon one click make it happen molly crab apple you are the shit that was a lot of fun you are the coolest thank you for no, having no, me no you're the coolest <laughs> i can't be the coolest when you're alive thank you also to our coolest sponsors thanks to lumosity.com go there use your computer your iphone get the free luminosity iphone or ipad app um, go to luminosity, luminosity.com slash Joe. That's L-U-M-O-S-I-T-Y dot com slash Joe. Click the start training and get your freak on. We're also brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. 1-800-Flowers. Enjoy 1-800-Flowers.com and use the code word J-R-E for a special offer of 18 beautiful Valentine roses for only $29.99. And for just 10 bucks more, you get a full two dozen, son. Thank you also to Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word Rogan. Save 10% off any and all supplements. We will be back tomorrow with the one and only War Machine. And then Thursday, Joey motherfucking Coco Diaz. 
We love you all. Thank you very much. And be good to each other. Mwah.